When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to Knife Talk, a podcast for knife makers, knife enthusiasts, and anyone interested in how knives are made, how they're built, and so on and so forth. My name is Jeff Fader from Fader Knives. I'm here with Craig Lockwood of Trop Knives. And Marco Momasi, Momasi Fire Arts. And speaking of how things are made, we're very fortunate enough to have our guest, Aaron Goff of Goff Customs, who's spent years with data in implementing that data to streamline his beautiful design of the Resolute MK3 from a small shop in a basement in Canada to a semi-mechanized factory. Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, guys. That was, that was some homework done on that intro there, Jeff, I've got to say. <laughs> Listen, if you don't know the, some of the most important and best introductory YouTube videos on knife making, they all came from Aaron. And I've been yeah. pushing him for years. Hmm. So I know all about it. Uh, yeah. I appreciate but that, man. It was three and a half years ago we first had Aaron on the, sh- on the show. Um, and I think Aaron's responsible for my my bit of a gear fetish that I've got on at the moment. So, um, anything well, you've got more cool an, stuff than I have now. You got the... anything with an X Y Z axis on? Um, yeah. I'm all over it, and that's all down to you and your your channel. And for the for those who haven't heard the the first episode, it was episode number six. So it was three and a half years ago. I was very sort of green going into starting the podcast, and the whole point of it really was to get people on I could learn from. And I think Aaron was, it was episode six. Yeah. Um, and he was saying this, I didn't have a clue what he was on about most of the time. And, <laughs> and, I, and I listened to that episode this morning. I'm just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have got a clue what's going on. But um, <laughs> your videos have, have inspired me massively to sort of, you know, change the way that I make knives. And, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to do things differently to everybody else because, you know, trying to stand out and, and do something slightly different. And, and the way you do things is very different to most people. So yeah. for those who, who don't sure. know and they haven't seen your videos or your Instagram, maybe, ex- expl- I won't say explain your process because it's, 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 <laughs> it's crazy, but um, you're not a regular knife maker. I- explain what I mean by that. Um, I think the biggest difference is just that I make use of um, automated machinery wherever I can in my process. So using CNC machines to help um, do all of the rough processing of the, the blades. Um, and then combining that with what I think to be like the value added parts of handwork. So um, hand finishing, you know, um, 
just the very careful kind of slow stuff rather than the the grunt work. Mm. Yeah. And what what about things like like heat treat and all that? I mean, when we first spoke, mm. um, I know that you 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 were doing small batches on your own, um, and then you were sending out to a sort of a big vacuum um, uh, heat treat facility. Yep. Um, and I've I've heard rumors recently that maybe you're doing your own again, or you're aiming to again. What what's going on there? Yeah. So um, one of the lessons that I've learned, like the hard way, quotation fingers, is that. Um, Anything you do in batches is risky. And the bigger the batch, the riskier it is. Um, and it also can place like a really large burden on you in terms of having to do one process a lot of times or having to buy a lot of material in one go. So the big issue with doing heat treat outside of my shop is that um, regardless of how many knives I send, it costs like seven or 800 bucks because um, they're running an entire vacuum furnace just for me. Right. So you know, I have to make that financially viable, I have to send them a lot of knives and to send them a lot of knives. Well, I'm just sending them blanks actually. So like, um, shaped profiles with no bevels. Yeah. Um, but that means that I have to buy a whole lot of steel and then I have to, you know, do all of the CNC machining on it up to that point. So in the past I've spent, you know, five or six days just in front of the machine changing blanks. Um, send them to heat treat and then get them back and discover that there's some tiny problem with them that I hadn't noticed. Cause when you're, when you're doing something over and over again, that's like really repetitive like that, you, you tend to zone out a little bit. It's just human nature. So, you know, you miss something and then you get this huge batch of, of blanks back that need corrective work or that might even be scrap, you know? Um, so I'm trying to reduce that, you know, in, in, um, Auto manufacturing, they call that like one piece flow, single piece flow. Mm. Trying to get your batch size as small as possible. Right. Okay. Um, we've got so many. Que- I've got so many questions personally for you here that we've sort of just jumped in very, very <laughs> quickly. We normally do little intros and so on, but I feel we've already spoken. I know who you are. They know so who the hell we are. It's okay. They know who we are. But um, Jeff, ten seconds. Your week. What's been going on? Who cares? I, I, I've been like a mental patient. I've been trying five to protect- seconds left. I've been- I'm working. I've been working. I've been waiting for Aaron. <laughs> I'm working. <laughs> you know, well, you give me nice. five seconds. <laughs> give me five seconds. Answer. It's just been it's been handle mania. I'm trying to I'm trying to channel my inner Aaron Goff and you know and and try to mechanize myself. But you know my CNC oh. machine happens to be my wrists up to the you know fingertips. That's true. You've been working on patches, haven't you? So you've been doing the, your yeah your sandwich. Uh, well, so. you know the th- interesting thing is is I you know Aaron is Aaron's videos have been very very helpful to me in in the beginning stages of knife making because he does he did a lot of initial videos on how to make knives. You know you look at you know what he's done. It's it's he, he him and Michael Trolsky have the best you know YouTube videos on how to make knives. And it was really helpful to me in terms of you know uh, doing satin finishes and stuff like that and. The idea that you you prefer to work in not just one knife at a time, and not just not only one knife at a time, one design. Mm. I feel that you taking taking out the uh, you making it striving for perfection on this one knife is just so awe inspiring to me. I enjoy the idea of being you know a little bit monotonous and a little bit like you know focused to the final outcome. Right. I, I take it a bit too far sometimes, maybe. Well, I mean, you know, 
I mean, how far? I mean, I don't, you know, obviously, I mean, you have like, you know, how several tons of machinery that are, I'm waiting to know mm-hmm. about what's going on underneath the the, uh, the beams for your downstairs neighbor. Oh, luckily I don't have one. They'd be very uh-huh. flat by now if I did. <laughs> uh, wait, wait, wait. Morocco, um, your week. Um, I'll tell you what, we'll give you 15 seconds. And you, 15. you've got to come up with something better than work. Okay. Go. Well, I have been working. But yesterday was Halloween, as we're recording on November 1st. And we had a minor scare that we lost our son. <laughs> well, oh, we were that trick, is a Jeez. minor scare. <laughs> uh it was literally the end of the night we're getting ready to leave he ran up the stairs after saying goodbye to all of the cousins they my my, uh my brother-in-law and his wife they have this great basement they just bought this new house it's it's got a bar it's where all the kids toys are there's an arcade down there so everybody's hanging out in the basement we say goodbye he runs upstairs i follow him literally like 20 seconds later i get upstairs i'm trying to get him ready but i can't find him i can't find him anywhere and at first it's like all right where are you at he must be playing somewhere because that's all he wanted to do all night is just play even when it was like time to go get candy he's like "Mm, i'm all right i want to (laughs) play you know and and then my wife comes up after saying goodbye to everybody she can't i'm like i still can't find him i don't know where he's at and she's looking around too and it took us like 15 it felt like forever maybe it was only 10 15 minutes but we could not find him Finally, after people were like running down the street, calling his name oh. and stuff. Oh my God. High, like, literally, we couldn't, like, everybody was scouring the house. We could not find him. I'm we sweating found... all over me. Me, too. You're making me so, this is so Jeez. anxious, man. It was, it's terrifying. He was hiding behind one little sitting chair in the upstairs, kind of like sitting area. And apparently, he was just like, he thought he was being so funny and giggling to himself <laughs> and his aunt my sister-in-law found him and oh, oh my god it was horrifying it was terrifying it was because av- we terror. just we could not figure out what happened and where he went and this is the thing it would make sense if he did this all the time he's literally never done this ever before oh jesus that and so we just terrifying. could not figure out what the fuck was going on and where so, he was at did were you like would people running down the street did people say would you, what did you say to him when you found him? <laughs> well, I think uh, m- my sister-in-law kind of stunned him. And she's like, You're, you scared your mommy. We, can't, we couldn't find you. We were calling you. And, he, and all of a sudden, he, at first he was like giggling, like I said. But then he was like, oh, shit. And then he got really upset. And then that's when my wife came in. And she got a hold of him and was hugging him. And she was like, jeez. Oh, tears were flowing. It was it was it was fucking horrifying. That's like, horrifying. That's horrifying. And all the doors in the house were locked, so it's like, how? Where the fuck did he? Get? It was, it was crazy. It just, it's like he vanished into thin air. Wow. When so, so that was a fun way to end the night. <laughs> that was more than fifteen <laughs> that's, seconds, that's but that was an yeah, incredible story. Seconds. That was an incredible story, though. Ugh. Yeah. <sighs> well, we have gone into that like the hardest lockdown possible here in france oh wow right. so um on i think it was wednesday night um our president macron um made a you have statement. 10 seconds craig 10 <laughs> seconds sorry there <laughs> you go there you go <laughs> 
basically saying we're in a complete and utter <laughs> lockdown. Um, all non-essential businesses closed, which includes you know bars, restaurants, all that kind of thing. Um, we can't leave the house unless we have a permit. If we do, we can't go more than a kilometre away from the house, which is wow. what, point, point 0.6 miles. Um, and this is until mid-December. So, yeah, it's 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 a bit crazy. So <sighs> we had one day notice. So as you can imagine, everybody's out buying everything that they can to get into their house. Oh, so, yeah, it's going to be a long, long winter, I mm-hmm. think. But I've I've got all the supplies that I need for you know for making as well for my current orders that kind of thing so I can just sort of hunker down but oh god yeah, yeah, a... it's never going to end mm. no not good yeah my parents just came out of a phase like that in Australia yeah yeah it it seems to be everywhere so um, Wales is you know where I'm originally from they're in a lockdown um, the rest of the UK will be in a complete lockdown from. I think from Thursday as well, um, and there's, there's to be honest, there's a lot going on in France at the moment as well. Not just mm-hmm. the whole sort of pandemic. There's there's been a lot of uh, um, violence, that kind of thing as well. So it's it's just I just can't wait for this year to be over. It's right. just like come on, next year need, needs to be better. Needs to be better. Well, Aaron, I'm yeah. under the impression that Australia is doing very well in how they're handling the coronavirus. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, people there have differing opinions of how well they're doing, but they um, they are definitely being pretty aggressive about it. Like right. they, I think they're back down to like just a couple of cases a day for the whole of wow. Australia now. But wow. for a while, they're up to like twenty two hundred, um, if I remember right. And they they treated that like a state of emergency. It was you know it, same as what Craig's going through now. Hmm. Yeah, we we were getting sort of forty thousand cases earlier in the week um, a day. Which is proper scary, but anyway, anyway, we've had lots and lots of questions through. So just before that, Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturers of the finest heat treating ovens available. Find your next oven at evenheat-kiln.com. To the chopper! And if you hear a beeping in the background, that's because my Even Heat's on at the moment, tempering some blades. So I may have to pop out in just a second. Um, but yeah, we put out the uh, the signal to, uh, for questions for Aaron. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? And we've had lots. So if you've got Ooh. a question for us, remember, on Instagram, you can DM us. Contact us via DM at Knife Talk on Instagram. It's that easy. And here's a bunch of people who have done. So the first one is from Chris Adams. Um and this is, I have a few small uh, technique questions. And he asks, how do you keep stainless Corby bolts flush when sanding? And also, any tips on keeping the light-coloured G10 clean during sanding? Um, yeah, so keeping the Corby bolts flush, like, I've found that you just have to make sure you're using fresh belts, make sure your platen's really clean. Um, you know, and when you're approaching the, the kind of finish line, make sure you're just using light pressure. Um, and at that point, I don't seem to have too many problems. I've actually stopped um, using stainless bolts. Hmm. Um, I just did a big batch um, where where there was a hundred knives, and that each had two uh, stainless bolts, and it was just so much more work compared to like a brass bolt. Yeah. Um, hmm. And yeah, I was using the, the recycled plastic as well, and you you know sometimes you could get this bump if you weren't very careful. So, um, but what I tend to do is if I'm if I'm roughing out on the platen. Um, taking the heads off the bolts, I always make sure I've got the blade pointing 
up as opposed to um, across because you're always going to get those, those sort of divots, especially with stainless bolts. So so I always do it. I take off the work rest. I bump those wheels back so the platen is forward so you you know you, you can move the knife up and down the platen. Um, but that, that seems to help a, a lot, having a flat platen that way. But yeah, they're just, it's just so much more work than a brass bolt. So I think going forward, I don't think I'll be... Um, doing many more knives with stainless bolts on at all interesting i've actually never used anything other than stainless bolts so wow i guess i'd never realized that they were hard but the construction of your knives are very you know you really i mean i know now based on some of your videos you're not even using epoxy anymore to put the you're 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 like depending on the the corbys completely yeah and that's actually because i i tested the epoxy and found that um it just wasn't adding that much strength um and it's kind of interesting the way that the, the glue joint will peel apart if you um, like pry on a blade. It's, it's focusing all of the, the pressure, all of that peel force on a very small part of the epoxy, which fails. And then the next part fails and it just peels away. Hmm. So, yeah, like I would never entertain the idea of doing a knife with just adhesive, for instance. Um, we we actually just had a question about that i think a couple episodes ago and a friend referred me to your video mm. and, uh, that you posted seven years ago and i watched how you went through and you you did it with you were trying i think you were trying Col- corby's for the first time uh versus just pins yeah and then you were also did a test on just epoxy and uh people should go check that out to see it but it, it was really interesting i I'd, I'd never seen anybody do that before i thought it was pretty cool to see that yeah i tend to like just assume that i have no idea what's going to happen and try and and test it um and i'm always surprised always surprised i find that hard to believe i find that hard i think you i think you you're such a data guy that i find that hard to believe that you you uh you don't know what's going to happen you know what man i love nothing more than being wrong I, I love, honestly, I love the feeling of being wrong, particularly when you're like investigating a new process or something. Cause you know, like sometimes I'll make assumptions and I'll, I'll operate on that assumption for like months and then I'll try something else. I'm like, Oh my God, this is so much better. Why didn't I do this right at the start? Mm. Um, I think it's easy for people, especially now with the likes of YouTube and there's so much information out there for let's say getting into something, let's say knife making, for example, is just to see somebody doing it, then the next person will do it the same way, the same yeah. way. And yeah, we don't question why we do things. It's just that's why we do it. Um, so yeah, it's refreshing to hear somebody say that they're you know they're testing things and seeing why it happens and mm. and you know does it need to, does do we need to use so many processes that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now what's interesting is is on back to the Corby bolts, because you're not using epoxy, I guess you're not worrying about heating up the 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 Corbys too much. Sometimes. I stopped just going straight to the belt once the Corbys are ready to come off, and I pre-cut them on a bandsaw just so I'm not putting yeah. so much friction on them because I'm always afraid, in my mind, I'm afraid that I'm going to, uh, you know, affect the epoxy if the bolt, because I use brass Corbys. Right. Um, I'm always afraid that I'm either going to burn the scales or I'm going to do something to kind of, like, screw up the epoxy right that spot. Um, I'm interested in the fact, because I would imagine, because you're not using epoxy you're probably not you don't have to worry about that in general the other thing is is you don't have if you want to get the same color as stainless you can use nickel and it's Mm -hmm. going to be a lot softer nickel nickel corbys are going to be a lot softer to work with than the stainless steel ones but you're not getting the the strength of the stainless steel right yeah 
Yeah, and I like so when I'm grinding my Colby's off, I just go straight to the platen with a 120 belt, um, and I just go make sure I dip the the handle in water a lot, um, because particularly when I'm working with light color G10, if you let the Corbys overheat, it will leave like a, a dark ring around the Corbys, um, and there's nothing worse than doing that on a knife that's like pretty much otherwise finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other question that you had about getting the the stainless color out of the the light colored handle scales um i honestly just wet sand by hand so either with like a, a 220 grid or, or whatever just to um take the metal dust out of the pores of the material and then if there's anything left the um mystically magic erases like the melamine sponges work really really well for getting the last <laughs> nice. little bit out so. ah i i actually got a lot, very I hated using light colors for that reason because mm-hmm. you know with G10 there are you know there are tiny voids that like love the dirt and I was using those blue scotch bright non-scratching scrubbies and I was having hmm. a good I was having a really good experience using that because they don't scratch they don't they're, they're for like stainless steel so you don't are like hmm. if you're stainless steel uh, you know refrigerator or something like that you're not going to change the hmm. satin finish with the blue scrubbies the blue scrubbies with soap and water awesome Nice. Yeah. I've cool. when I did my Smith and Bard small batch uh last year, I, I was using the white paper micarta and that mm. picks up all kinds of color and dust and shit and and I found that um I was using these rubber abrasives. Uh I think Klingspore made them and they're usually made for uh like woodworking because you can cut them into all kinds of different shapes. So it's actually it's abrading and also acting as an eraser kind of at the same time. So it helped cool. pull the dust out of that white material. Um and it was really it acted really it literally like acted like an eraser, like you would, you know, on paper with a pencil. It was interesting. Yeah. The other thing is it's your transition between the grits. Like if you go from thirty six grit to 220 you're not going to really see all those little you got to really kind of you got to get down to a fine finish so you're trying to take away as much possible so it's not like giving you even you know jagged little you know lines that'll love that dirt yeah for sure yeah and that's another part where my process really differs right because my handle scales are already um like the final shape ideally i wouldn't touch them at all so I'm just cutting off the Corbys with the, the grinding belt. That's um, a dream. Right, whereas when you're like rough shaping the handle, as you said, you have to go with a coarser grit to start with, and that can complicate things for sure. The video on your website showing you how you make your knives is so much fun to watch <laughs> because it goes from all the processes, and then it sh- it sh- it's just such a great way to see how your you know how your knives are made and i loved there was one part where you had your g10 you said it was so super cool because it's because you've mechanized so many things your starting process is so much different than mine you know mm. where you say well here's how you start you start you start laminating the, the the g10 i'm like whoa he's doing the handles already <laughs> he's not doing that when he's doing the heat treatment and then um I, when you have you finally put the uh, handle scales on your on the 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 fixture you said this is my favorite part where all the g10 rooster tails and Mm -hmm. and the g10 starts flying yeah i love that bit yeah you do but it's but it's easy right you you just press a button and a knife spits out the Mm -hmm. other end oh man i love i love when people say that (laughs) i do i honestly like there's just so many little things to go wrong and (laughs) 
to to find like I so I spent a year and I, I I'll apologize to Mike for this because he also spent a year doing this too. I spent a year hand sanding every pair of handle scales that came off the CNC machine because they didn't fit the the tangs correctly. Mm. They were they had a little step and I couldn't work out what was going wrong. And it turns out that um, the drill that I was using was still cutting to size, but the tip of the drill had worn just a little bit. So when it started cutting into the G10, it would walk in a very um, repeatable direction. It would just walk off, off position by five thousandths of an inch and make mm. every single one of my pair of handle scales not fit correctly. <laughs> um, and it took me a year to work out what that problem was. Well, you know, as stupid. as circumstance would have it, I've just ordered some bits this morning to cut G10 on my little mill here. Mm, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what, what bits you're using for cutting G10, because it's obviously very sort of abrasive stuff, you know? Yeah, so um, I've always just used uh, four-flute carbide ball nose end mill. Um, cool. Glad you said that, because it's exactly what I just ordered. <laughs> exactly. But there is <laughs> something squeezing. better. Um, right, okay. So it, what I find is that when the tool starts to wear, you not only lose um, the dimensions, like you start, the handle scales will start getting bigger because the tool's wearing. Um, but when you're cutting the end grain of the G10, um, so like at the front of the scale and at the, the butt of the scale, it'll start tearing and pulling out the glass fibers rather than cleanly cutting them off. And... For a while, that's not really a problem because it, it still feels smooth. But I actually had this really weird problem where I'm doing final assembly of the knife and I'm using like a microfiber cloth to clean it. And it was pulling fibers out of the microfiber cloth. And then I couldn't get them off the knife. Mm. So I'd have like these bright blue fibers stuck to like a black handle scale. And I couldn't get them off, you know. Um, very silly thing. But anyway, so... What I found was that um, my tooling provider, Maritool, I actually asked them if they could make diamond tooling for me. So they now make two flute diamond um, ball nose end mills, and they cut, like, they produce, like, a glass finish on G10. It's beautiful. Hmm. Do you find in the process you're monitoring your tooling more? Because just like you were saying before, you know, things can get monotonous and then you can lose track and then things mm-hmm. can, you know, you know, all of a sudden you got a pile of, you know, scales with, with a step on them. Do you find that you're having to count how many, you know, your, your process must be very dictated on the wear of the tools and how do you kind of maintain that without, with minimal, uh, you know, problems? Um, two ways. So just like trying to make sure that I'm measuring stuff whenever I can find a dimension that I can measure it, I'm trying to make sure that I measure it. Um, and I was a bit lax about that for a long time. And I've, I've just learned the hard way that it's something I can't not do. So, you know, I have a pair of like two inch micrometers that I um, use to measure the distance between like the tip of the, the finger guard to the spine. And that gives me the overall dimension of, of the knife, whether my tool's cutting big or small. Um, and then I use something that's like a known good tang to test the fit of the handle scales because there's, there's, everything's curves. It's like impossible to measure with standard tools mm. for the handle scales. And then, um, you know, just bringing the, the old school craftsmanship part of it in as well, like looking everything over by eye, deburring stuff, and then, you know, checking that it's still right, um, running your hands over things. Um, and just trying to make sure that I'm not getting into that zone where I'm I'm losing focus. Um, you know, trying to keep the 
the batch size small for that reason. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're half an hour in. We've done one question so far. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is from Rob McKibben, um, again on Instagram. Uh, and again, question for Aaron. In the past, I saw that you used A2 quite a bit and mm -hmm. did quite a bit testing along with 3V and CPM 154. Are you still preferring A2? And if so, what hardness do you run at? So, yeah, I it's do a very still... personal question. What hardness do you run at? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, gee, don't, don't do that to Aaron, please. Please, he's a respectable guy. I don't want, you don't want, you don't want that kind of conversation. Rob, I know what 15. kind of podcast this is. Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still running A2 for all my knives. Um, I am slowly exploring alternatives. Um, but yeah, A2's been fantastic. Like I've heard from many, many customers that they're really surprised because they're, I, I don't know, like. I guess they're not expecting A2 to have the edge retention of a, a super steel, um, so to speak. But yeah, I, I run my A2 really hard, like 62 to 62 and a half, and it's fantastic. Oh, cool, cool. So you, you mentioned your customer then. Do, do you have like a standard customer? Who, you know, who are your customers? Are they, are they generally the same type of folk, do you think? I think it's divided between the people that are you know, kind of collectors that they, they really love knives and they just have a couple of really nice knives that they appreciate. And then um, people that are like hardcore users, so hunters and, and uh, hikers and that kind of thing. Um, my ideal customer is more on the, the people that are going to use the knives side, personally. Yeah. Um, just because I really want my knives to get used. Mm. And I mean, I was just looking at the website. I mean, they're priced so so well for something that's been been made with such care and you know detail and attention. I mean, Thank they're you. under hundred four hundred bucks, and yeah, they look incredible. So, yeah, expect an order from me very very soon. <laughs> I'll look forward to it. <laughs> uh, Baltic Blades uh, has got the next one, um, and this is for all of us, I think. Um, so I tell you, let's start with Morocco on this one. How do you see your business in five years? Ooh, five years. Where would I would ideally like to be doing fewer, if not possibly no full custom orders, and uh, have mm. and have somewhat of a kind of I don't know, not necessarily production, but just kind of uh, kind of a more accessible knife available that I just kind of make um, and. And there's no real thought in it necessarily. I guess when I when I say no thought, I'm in regards to the custom orders. They I I agonize over the details to such a point that it it slows me down to a snail's pace. Mm -hmm. um, and if I were uh, so basically, I want to get rid of customs in the way that I'm not doing customs, but I'm still doing like my full integrals or my integral knives with Damascus and all that stuff. It's just not necessarily tailored to one specific person. And that creates a lot more ease and freedom for me and my productivity, um, mm. again, versus agonizing over the details. And, and so I guess more than anything, just no custom so that I have the freedom to do these, uh, explore all these different Damascus things that I want to do as well as still have, uh, you know, a consistent sustainable income, um, from maybe some kind of simpler projects that I can turn out, you know, if, you know, I, if I could turn out a dozen knives a month, that would be great. I'd be really stoked about that. Um, so are your books closed now? Have you stopped taking orders? Yeah, I stopped taking orders t t two years ago after I was wow. on 
Joe Rogan's podcast, and I still have um, at least a couple years of work in front of me. Um, and yeah, it looks like a black hole when I look at it. Sometimes it's kind of <laughs> depressing. Congratulations, uh, though, man. That's that's amazing. Yeah, no, thank you. And it it is one of those things that's kind of a blessing and a curse. I feel more blessed about it nowadays because who knows where things are going to go economically yeah. speaking. Um, you know, we hope that 2020 ends, but unfortunately, I don't think our problems end with 2020. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, so I'm just right now, I'm just still working on plugging away uh, at that list while I still try to while I try to work uh, at refining what that new business model will look like. Um, so that I, I feel great about coming into the workshop and doing work more than anything. Mm. Yeah. Jeff, what about, what about you? Five years. I mean, we do this question quite regularly, but, um, we're normally sort of a year or two out, but sort of five years, you know, it's a long runway. What, what do you expect to be happening and what do you want to be doing? I want to make more sculpture. Hmm. I want to make more sculpture. I want to, I want to kind of dovetail more of the sculptural aspects of my sculpture with the work with the knives mm. and just try to really kind of like put me into somewhere that's a lot different from from a lot of other people so I, I really want to kind of like I want to get back into some sculpture I want to also you know focus on ways in which to make it a little bit more streamlined in terms of uh custom experience but more uh less less emails less and i want to make it a little bit uh easier to kind of easier to kind of make and easier to kind of sell but uh you know i want to growth but i i want to just try to also kind of you know push myself in a d direction that's more kind of who i am and less of you know we'll see how's that yeah. for an answer good yeah all good all good <laughs> um for me in five years i i want to be making a lot more um as in, you know, a much higher output. Mm -hmm. And I think that will involve, um, you know, taking a leaf out of Aaron's book and doing a lot more um, sort of manufacturing scale, I suppose. Um, I think my my sort of, my my special power, if you like, that makes me, sets me aside from others maybe, is my sort of, my maybe design skills and, you know, sort of a, a more of a technical background. So I think sort of leveraging that a bit more um, and having more of a, a manufacturing kind of thing going on so I can keep offering knives, uh, maybe at a, you know, at a lower price so I can get as many out there as possible. Um, and my thinking is the more that are out there, the more feedback I'm getting so I can keep on improving and, and you know, that way. So, yeah, five years, that, that's, that's the big goal. And Aaron, so we asked you this question three and a half years ago. This yeah. very this very question, and your answers were the you were a couple of months out from the Resolute Mac Four that you said. Yeah, just a couple of months. Yeah, that was three and a half years ago. Yeah, <laughs> oh, he's holding you and, to it. Oh, yep, and and stainless blades. Um, yeah. are they happening? What's what's going on there? Um, yeah, they are kind of happening. Um, so I'm testing AEBL as a potential replacement for my A2. Um, just trying to work out the the processes for for handling it um i am going to be testing a bunch of other steels as well um but part of the problem when you're like you know i have to be able to guarantee that i can get a certain steel and you know steels like lmax and and um some of the cpm steels they're just really inconsistent in whether or not you can actually even get them um so that poses a real problem for me potentially 
Yeah. Um, and and yeah, you know, the Resolute Mach 4 is still just three and a half months away. <laughs> you got two more years. You got two more years, Craig. Give him a break. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, like And I suppose I suppose you got your DLC coatings anyway on your on your current resolutes. So yeah. you know, that that sort of solves a bit of a problem of not, of not offering stainless, I suppose, anyway, doesn't it? Unfortunately the like the DLC does help prevent corrosion, but it doesn't completely stop it. Um like if someone puts their knife in their sheath wet, it it will rust through the through the DLC. Nice. Um most of the time the DLC actually stays on and you actually get rust through it. Uh, which is kind of interesting. So you clean the blade up, and then it, it looks new again. But there's only so many times you can do that before the DLC will come off. Can but... you explain what the DLC is and what the process is to put them on your knives? Sure, man. It's super cool. I, I really love this process. So unfortunately, right now, I'm not doing this process in-house. I'm sending it um, to a company who has been back and forth helpful and problematic. Um but basically, the knives are... It's not Tim, is it? It's not a guy called Tim, Miles. <laughs> no. He's not sending stuff to France. Give me a break. Come on, man. It's him. It's, it's yeah, it's a bit of a fussy there. process, at least, at least with the company that I currently use. So I send them the knives. They clean them really well. So they normally ultrasonically clean them, dry them really well. And then they're put in a vacuum chamber, and all of the air is completely evacuated. Um, and then... Basically, what they do is they use a stream of ions, so electrically charged gas um, atoms, and they aim that at a block of carbon. And the ions are so high energy that they actually chip individual atoms of carbon off the block and charge them at the same time. And then those carbon atoms are attracted to the blade. So it's kind of like powder coating, like the, huh. the individual atoms of carbon will stick onto the blade. And because it's in a vacuum, there's nothing to stop them from just adhering. Um, so they basically, through like uh, van der Waals forces, through it like atomic bonding, they just stick to the, the surface of the steel. And then as more and more of them stick onto the steel, they um, assemble into a layer of what's called amorphous diamond. So it's um, semi-crystalline like diamond is, but then there's also, um, you know, kind of unarranged parts of it um so you end up with this you know layer of, of black carbon that's super super hard almost like diamond it's very very cool hmm. so it's just so like getting a can of rust-oleum and just spraying your like, yeah you just whack it right on <laughs> what's the advantages of of that to like a cerakote what's, what's wear resistance big... um, right okay yeah like because it's actually harder than the steel itself by a significant margin so Unless you like smash it on a rock or something, it, it's really not going to come off. Whereas Cerakote, um, you know, if you cut a bunch of cardboard with a Cerakote coated blade, it'll wear the Cerakote off. Hmm. Yeah. And how does that affect regular maintenance of a tool like a knife, like when it comes to sharpening? Um, not at all, actually, because the, okay. the layer is so thin and the, your sharpening abrasives are so hard that it just goes right through. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've heard about the, the diamond like coatings and i was i've always been curious about how that would affect or work for chef's knives but i've never mm -hmm. seen or heard anybody using them well question. hopefully you'll see or hear it soon oh nice. oh <laughs> keep off our grass keep getting <laughs> well, patch <laughs> so you just are you starting to make chef knives yeah yeah that i mean that's been a goal for a really long time um and i have a prototype and a video for the prototype will be going up soon um 
and I'm uh, partway through redesigning my website to have the prototype on it and all that kind of stuff. So, I, yeah, I'm super excited about it. Do you have a name? I know your name is very important. You must have a name for it. I do, but I don't want to say it yet. And it rhymes with <laughs> Mesolute? No. Mesolute. <laughs> Yeah, I saw yeah. pictures. I saw pictures of you. Uh, you took some culinary school classes, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And that was specifically so that I could, um, you know, feel like I had a handle on a kitchen knife design. It's mm. nice. good move. <laughs> it was fun. It was a lot of fun. You just mentioned um, abrasives too. So whilst we're on the subject, combat abrasives make the world's best abrasives. That was a squeeze in, wasn't it? A real squeeze in that one. <laughs> Let me do it again. <laughs> Combat abrasives make the world's best abrasive belts for knife makers. Available in any size and at unbelievable prices. Go take a look at CombatAbrasives.com and get 15% off with the promo code KNIFETALK15. Do it now! KNIFETALK15, CombatAbrasives.com. Go get them. Okay, another one from William Roberts. And I'm sorry, Aaron, we're just, we're just spurting his question straight at you. That's fine. I made a, a boning knife with an ironwood handle for a local butcher. He loves how it looks, but it says it's slick in the hands. Mm. Do you have any recommendations for handle materials for working knives? And he also says, I always look forward to Monday mornings with you three. <laughs> As do a lot of people, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult, right? Because we're we're kind of walking the line between aesthetics and functionality and trying to find a, a good mix there is really hard. So my carter is great for, for grip, but it's also kind of porous. So particularly for a butcher or, you know, someone who's using it for like filleting knives or boning meat, all those juices are going to get into the handle eventually and it's going to be a stinky knife. Mm. Um, no one likes that. So... Yeah, like G10 is fantastic. One of the reasons it's fantastic is because you can texture it. So I actually leave all of my handles fairly coarse in terms of grit for that particular reason. So I only finish them to 120. And it still looks really nice, but it's, it's reasonably grippy. Um, and you can take it further if you want by bead blasting it. Um, and then it's, it's incredibly grippy. Nice. What do you think, Jeff? Um, so I know you've done a lot of sort of butcher knives. Um, handle materials. Well, what do you recommend? I mean, I, I when I when I'm talking to people, I, I sometimes I'll talk I'll talk to cooks and they'll say I don't, I'm afraid that the knife is going to be slippery in my hand. You know, butchers and hunters get into it. You know, they're they're far more into, um, you know, blood and guts and and kind of you know liquids that than like your average you know chef knife would use. Uh, I was talking to a butcher. I'm doing um, um, butcher knives with uh, with these with these professional butchers. And the interesting thing is, with butchers is, you know, they're sharpening their knives all the time. Like they're the ones who have those knives that are like down to like a toothpick. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, I the the ones I've been dealing with, some of them just have regular wood handles. And it's basically because they have inexpensive knives. Because these knives are constantly getting, you know sharpened and constantly getting smaller and smaller and smaller so a lot of these guys are not getting expensive knives because they're afraid to uh you know the, they don't want to spend you know four or five hundred dollars on a knife that they're going to just whittle down in a couple of years to nothing um i tend to agree with uh i love g10 i'm a huge g10 fan i love the colors i do love the texture and i also i personally believe that a lot of slippage has to do with the shape of the handle like i think that how it fits yeah. in your hand makes sure. a huge difference now I started to do lanyard 
holes in some hunting knives because an elk hunter friend of mine told me, look, if I'm, in, if I'm up elbows deep in that thing, I don't want this slipping off my hand. So I need a lanyard to make sure that I don't have to, you know, jump in that carcass to find my knife. But I'm a G10 fan. <laughs> you know, I hadn't used G10, you know, like in earnest until very recently for these camp knives. So I, I'd used G10. It was like light colored stuff a few years ago. And I was just like, oh, I don't see what the fuss is. I really didn't like it. I didn't like working with it. I didn't like the way it looked. Um, but yeah, I, I stumbled across the biggest secret in knife making. You know, just a couple of months ago, is that black G10? It's just the best stuff. It finishes really well. It looks really cool, and obviously, it's really hardy. Um, but going back to sort of local butchers here in France, um, any professional um, like butcher's store or anything like that, they're not actually allowed to use wooden handles. Um, right. So it's all composite stuff or plastics. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's there's an argument that some people say that you know. The microbial effects of having wood could actually be better than using plastic and all the rest of it. But, um, yeah, it is actually law. They can't use um, wooden-handled um, knives in um, professional kitchens, hmm. which is crazy. There was something – I was watching uh, Jason Knight's Forge series, his first one, and he was saying that curly maple has, like, natural qualities that to repel hmm. bacteria. I thought yeah. that was pretty interesting. I would imagine there are other, hmm. other kinds of woods like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's it, one of those things where you can find an argument for or against most things, can't right. you? So yeah, you're digging deep, I think, really there for that yeah. kind of stuff. If somebody's, if anybody's thinking of doing uh, natural materials other than possibly maple, I've also heard that um, a lot, horn is really good. Uh, Bill Burke, he's a custom maker from Idaho, and uh, he does horn on a lot of. Uh, his chef's knives and from the, the the response from the chefs is that they never uh it never gets slippery in their hand when they're breaking down meat either before, you know in butchery or even after it's been cooked and you know the, the the fat is rendered and it's getting greasy everywhere um i guess antler and horn offers really good uh grip too but again Absolutely. going back to that kind of like the potential of kind of microbes and germs and stuff and bacteria is growing that that's definitely something to take into consideration but if it's somebody that's not working in a kind of a production environment probably less ideally hopefully less of a concern where they can take the time um, between projects to clean up that handle instead of letting it sit around and fester hmm. back to g10 really quick one thing that i i loved that um one of the things that i have a problem with and this goes back to what craig was saying but also uh, what Aaron is doing is if you're using a light G10 color, like blues, the, the, the very high colored reds, if you're not using, if you're using a drill to drill through for your Corby bolts and then you change over to your, your step, your, you know, your countersink for the Corby bolts, if your drill isn't the same size as the beginning shank, what can happen is the, the countersink can actually bruise the inside of your hole. And what you end up with is like on blues, especially, but like lighter colors, you can actually mm. see this white bruising. I call it bruising because I think that the, I figured that the, um, that you're kind of like, it's not a perfect fit and it's kind of rattling around in that hole a little bit to give you, um, a, a you know, like a white <laughs> ring around it. And that, that's one of yeah. the things that I noticed because, uh, Aaron uses his CNC machines to drill, to cut in those shoulders uh for his corbys he doesn't have to have that 
Yeah, I can still get it if I let tools get really dull, because then you end up tearing the, the fibers out, and it, it causes a similar thing. Mm. But yeah, G10. Love it or hate it. Um, I'm a big fan now, where I used to, used to hate Go it. Go get some white G10 and tell me how it works out for you. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> Do you want to take the next one, Mareko, the next question? Though? Yeah, the next one is actually from Tim. Oh. Uh, he says, hey, cuties. So I just got a heat treatment oven. Unfortunately, not an even heat. Ah, uh, boo. Ah, we're not we going to take this we question. All right, next question. Show. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, he's saying, I was wondering, do you put your steel, uh, ADCRV2 in my case, do you put it in when the oven is cold and let it and let the steel come up to temp with the oven, or do you wait until the oven is hot before putting the blade in? And if you do multiple blades, do you leave the blade at critical temp until your oil has cooled down enough? Um, love the show, and thank you. So... What do you guys think? Do you let your blades come up to temp with the with the oven, or you drop them in while after the ovens I, come up to a, a decent temperature? I've been doing a bunch of O one this morning, um, and I've actually just pulled up the the, the recipe that I use. So uh, I preheat to twelve hundred Fahrenheit, which is six forty C for people with normal brains like me. Um, and yes, yeah, so it's preheated to then. Then I'll dump the knives in and let them soak. Uh, for about 20 minutes um, and then I'll ramp up then to critical temperature mm. um, I, I, I don't know the benefits of it and I'm sure if we had um, the guy who wrote the book what's, what's the guy? Dr. Dr. Laren I'm sure he'd be able to um, answer the question of why I do that but um, it's just that I found the recipes and, and it works for me I've got a tester here, I've tested it and it seems to work well so yeah I dump it in at 1200 Fahrenheit and let it sit for 20 minutes before ramping up I've heard there are benefits to the quicker you can heat the steel, the better. I mean, there are there are some of the the world's top makers use heat treating salts, right? Which is a, mm-hmm. a, a high temperature liquid liquid salt bath. You put the blade in, and the blade is up to temperature in possibly just seconds. You know, mm. and so and then they give it a soak time, you know, to allow things to do whatever, um, and then they quench it, and. So I, it, with that in mind, I, I actually, you know, if I'm doing multiple knives, I, I'll only do a couple knives at a time, but the initial ones, I'll, you know, I'll drop the knives in it, uh, once the temp or the, the kilns at about 1200, just like Craig was saying, and let it come up the rest of the way with the oven. But once it's up to temperature, I'm not too worried about it being super hot. I just, I, I pull the knives out quench and then I put the next ones right in, um, and as those are coming up, ideally the oil is cooling down, and um, and I just keep doing them until I'm all done. Um, I have no problems with putting blades in at at austenizing temperatures. Yeah, I'm huh. the same way too. And there's actually an advantage to doing that if you're using foil. Um, if because if you're using foil for like an air hardening steel, and you put the blade in at um, you know when the the kiln is cold, then you're actually losing one of the advantages of foil, which is that the foil heats up first. And it, it absorbs the oxygen out of the inside of the foil. So if you put it in a really hot oven, you get less um, oxide and less scale. Uh-uh. Hmm. Mm. That's the other question like he's that. got there really is, can you leave the blades at the critical temp until uh, your oil has cooled down enough? Um, what's that mean? So if you do multiple blades, can you leave the blades at the critical temp 
um, until your oil has cooled down enough. I see what, yeah, I see what he means. Um, what I do, I just split my oil into into multiple um, containers. Um, if you do a multiple blades, mm-hmm. um, and it's a question we get a lot as well. People saying, "How do you do multiple blades in one heat treat?" Because obviously, if you open the door, your screen will show that the temperature has dropped. But remember, that's just the thermocouple that's reading that temperature. There's a there's a mass in that blade which will hold its temperature far better than the thermocouple will. So just because your 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 oven says that the temperature dropped down to X temperature doesn't mean that the blades have. So I don't really see any problem with opening the door multiple times as long as you're not you know leaving it open and let the temperature drop like crazy. Because that thermocouple, it's it's going to be reading the temperature in you know in milliseconds. So I think in the case of an even heat, it's every two thousand milliseconds. So every two seconds, it'll refresh what the temperature is on the display. But that's only the temperature of the thermocouple. Remember, not necessarily the knife. So. Doing multiple blades, I don't really see it being a problem. But yeah, I'd split my oil into multiple multiple um, vessels, heat up the oil in each of them so they're ready to go, and then you shouldn't really have a problem. Sorry. I saw I saw Liam, Liam Hoffman quenching. He made an integral axe, incredible one cool. piece one piece axe with he forged the handle with a I beam construction, and he quenched it in like it must have been like a 50 gallon drum of oil it was huge it was huge and that is definitely if the you know if you a lot of people want to buy smaller amounts of oil because it's just easier to get a hold of but if you have less oil in a small container it's going to heat up much faster that's one thing but one thing just in terms of the ovens and this is a lot of times we get a lot of people who say do you you know can i just heat treat out of a forge the answer is, is a lot of times the great thing about uh, heat treating out of a out of a kiln, especially an even heat, is you have these schedules. Like when you guys are talking about it, you put your knives in at uh, 1200 degrees. My schedule for 440C is I'm starting at 1175. So if I'm doing a couple batches of knives, I'm I want to drop the temperature down to below 900 for this reason. Like I'll let's say I drop my uh, my first batch, I quench them all, and then I open my door and I and I you know I turn off the you know I'm ready for the next set of knives i'll drop the oven down to 900 degrees because when i put my next batch in i don't want to overshoot if the if the oven still has too much residual heat i don't want to overshoot my first stage so that's one of the things that i'm very careful of because you know then it can screw your whole you know it can screw your whole schedule if if the oven's reading you're you're blowing past your first stage you could have a problem in regards to that whole set so um that's the best part about ovens is you know when you're doing especially you know stainless steels and stuff like that you might have set times of soaking 10 minutes here 10 minutes there 10 minutes there and being able to kind of address that letting them come to a certain temperature and sitting at that temperature to soak it's it's you can't do that with a forge you know it's really hard um so what does he say so the question says critical temp oh can you let the blades hang at critical temp temp while the oil is cooling so like jeff was saying like depending on the mass of oil that you have um you know at least all right so i'll say for for my heat treating setup i'm probably only using about a gallon of oil in a about a four by four uh square tube that's about 24 or 30 inches tall um you know i can quench maybe three knives in that and then the oil is going to be too hot it's going to be outside of its ideal operating kind of uh operating zone or temperature and so i 
it, it could take upwards of half an hour or so for that oil to come back down to a proper temperature. And if that's the case, I, I definitely do not want to leave a blade sitting in the kiln that entire time. I'll actually, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll let it come down to maybe just a couple degrees above ideal operating temp and then i'll throw the knife in because i know in that whatever 10 15 minutes the oil is still it'll still keep coming down but it'll still be within that ideal operating range and and that way you're not letting your knife just kind of cook in the oven while, while you're waiting for the yeah. oil to come down yeah because i'd be worried about grain growth and stuff leaving it yeah absolutely in the oven for that long so do you, do you guys take pre the next one there? Um, so, sorry, sorry. Sorry, quick question. Do you guys normally preheat your oil when you're quenching? Yes, yeah, and I've got one of those little laser thermometer things, you know, to uh, read the temperature. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just, yeah. Again, yeah. I'm not sure why. It's just something that, that I do. I know it's something to do with the viscosity of the oil, but I'm not sure of the benefits. So, uh, but it, again, one of those things that I've seen other people do and, and I copy. Maybe I need to question more. Question everything. My understanding is that like warm oil actually quenches faster than cold oil. Because as you yes, said, the, the yeah. change in the viscosity. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't used oil in a long time. And I used to use canola, which smelled fantastic. It smelled like French fries in my shop every time. <laughs> yeah. So A2 is completely air, air cooling. Yeah. Um, sorry, air quenching. Yeah, I'm actually plate quenching it now, though. I just find um, even with vacuum heat treat, like you just get too many knives that aren't perfectly straight. Um, whereas with plate quenching, you know, guaranteed straight knives. So that, that's yeah. a big thing for me. Now, when you okay. send your stuff out for heat treatment, they temper as well? Yeah. Yeah, they uh, do tempo, they do cryo, everything. Um, and they were fantastic. Like, some of the companies I've dealt with, they're just like, oh, you know, we did whatever we felt like. And then, you know, and you're just like, God damn it, I sent you a checklist. Can't you just, oh, wow. you know, can't I can you see just do that the... driving you nuts. Oh, my God, dude. Like, there was one, <laughs> there was one heat treat company that I used for a while. And I got there and I was like, oh, there's, there's two knives missing. And he was like, oh, I guess we've got a thief. And he handed me like 10 bucks. I'm like, what are you talking Jesus. about, man? Like, God damn this it. This doesn't like... surprise me at all. When I was in a yeah. metal shop, we had a, all these sets of railings. It was a ton of railings, panels sent to a galvanizer. Mm -hmm. They sent it back. One of the panels that they strapped on had been run over by a forklift. <laughs> it was oh, like, I mean, it was like destroyed. And they strapped it in to send it back to us. We're like, how could you what happened and you're like i don't know and they just they, i'm not that doesn't yeah. surprise me at all i mean this thing was like twisted like a like you know like a wire it was crazy yeah. people don't care that's funny yeah <laughs> I, well, I tried a new dlc place lately uh like recently and they were they said oh they look fantastic well when i get the blades back and the dlc has popped off the spines of all of them like it's oh, just oh, totally geez. gone and apparently they didn't even notice this like oh my god yeah yeah, it's 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 really difficult dealing with outside companies. Like the I did find a good heat treat place, but like yeah, I've gone through some real doozies to get there. I'll sure. tell you what would be Go ahead. Sorry, what would be the investment for being able to do your own DLC? Is that is that crazy? Um, so that is actually something I'm working on. Uh, and to just buy a machine off the shelf, it's like half a million dollars. Oh, um <laughs> Yeah, so that's obviously not an option. So I yeah. I'm trying to work out what I can homebrew and I might not be homebrewing DLC instead I might be homebrewing like titanium carbon nitride um, which is another black coating that's um, very similar in terms of its overall properties 
Um, yeah, I mean, some some of the vacuum coatings are actually pretty simple to apply. Like, if you want to do nickel or copper or something, like, you just basically heat a, a nickel or a copper wire up in a vacuum next to your knife, and it, like, um, vaporizes and then condenses on your knife. Huh. Um, but the the diamond like carbon one is is difficult because you have to carbon doesn't really atomize like uh sorry vaporize very easily so you have to like work out how to chip the little atoms off right in in regards to depending on other people this this is Mm. all this is the funny thing about being a custom knife maker is because you it's so hard to like allow other people to to do the things that you know you need done you know, you're, yeah. you're giving yeah. all, you're giving away, you're giving that trust away that somebody's going to do it exactly the way you want it. And it's always very tough. I had actually had a, uh, a knife, uh, handle guy who was a long time ago who I asked him to match something that he had made me before. And I said, I get this customer who wants exactly like this. And, I, and he, he knew, he knew exactly what I was talking about. I, he literally sent me the wrong, he sent me something totally different. I mean, it was just like, I was just like, you know, this is completely different from what i told you so no it's the same exactly the same i had to take a picture of both of them together i'm like come on man <laughs> let's, let's, let's stop playing games here you know it's it's hard it's not so... everybody has the same exacting standards i think i think that's well the that's thing. the hard yeah. part of allowing someone different. to help you with your you know you aaron is like i mean he's the most devoted to the process that of, of knife makers that i've ever met i've ever met or talked to i mean there's so for some dude to just like give him some fritz about oh yeah you know it was just exactly the way you said and it turns out to be like a banana yeah you know that must be very frustrating oh it's super frustrating yeah and i mean i, I recently went through some issues with dlc that put me back like more than a month um because they they kept sending me blades that had blemishes and claiming it was my fault and I, i'm like well tell me what i'm doing wrong like i'm happy to change my process just tell me what i'm doing wrong and yeah in the end they fixed it without me changing anything so you know so how many would you say what is your percentage give me you know, you can whatever of mm-hmm. like stuff that you send out that turns out to be like unusable in your in your eyes at least five percent huh um that's like the very best so like the that that um batch of dlc that i had that was wrong it was a hundred percent um how many I, knives was that Ah, uh, that was like 70 oh my god so yeah that's Spikes. a lot of work so and what I, do you, we have a wall full of like hanging you know non-usable <laughs> knives um, i'm very lucky with dlc in particular in that um you can blast it off and then you know have another shot um because the temperatures involved and stuff are below heat treatment yet. Yeah, and if they get like a, a bigger, more important customer, then they'll just bump my stuff, you know. Um, temperatures, so there's no no risk to the steel. Um, yeah, if it just was like DLC, every time it went wrong, it was making because, scrap, I wouldn't you know, you don't, Yeah, like DLC is normally like one to two be weeks, treated, and then you send your knives out to be dlc um, what What's the turnaround yeah, time? Yeah, it's not I bad mean, at all. Obviously, like, the this is the question everybody asks, is how long does it take you to make a knife? But does it be real? I mean, I would imagine that it really kind of puts you back in terms of production because you're counting on all these people's steps and it takes time. I found a good company. So if anyone's looking for a heat treat in Toronto, I use Atlantic Heat Treating, and they're fantastic. And, you know, like there's been times Oh, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Times when, um, you know, the the blades come back under hardness or something, and I just 
I call up the owner of the company. I'm just like, oh, you know, these are. too soft and he's like oh no worries at all like we'll run them again for you and they'll run like an entire furnace again to fix the problem oh wow um that's great which is amazing whereas like the dlc guys you know they're like what problem right <laughs> it is what it is so yeah. here's the tough question for you of all mm -hmm. the companies you work with which one is least excited to get a phone call from you <laughs> definitely the dlc <laughs> definitely. yeah like uh, i think they kind of hate me and um i'm i'm not super fond of them either the the one guy that actually runs my blades he's lovely and and really tries to do his best it's... you're backtracking now no you've no, already he's, said it he's, already he's said doing it. the right thing he's doing the right thing he's going to the right guy the guy actually pushing yeah. the button he's the one who's buttering him up yeah, it's just, unfortunately, I feel like him and the owner of the company don't communicate that well. So I get different stories. So oh. would this mean that you're now going to investigate other way, other types of materials to use because it's too much of a pain in the ass? I would think that if you're <laughs> trying to, like, figure something out, but this particular situation is too difficult, maybe you need to, you know, rework out the materials that you're using. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's one of the reasons why I would want to use stainless because um, it gives me more finishing options uh, that I can do in-house. And then, yeah, the, you know, the other thing is, like, working out, can I do coatings in-house? Like, I'd really love to. And, I, I mean, that's... I find stuff like that super, super cool. It's, it's kind of what gets me up in the morning, you know? And it's also a really cool thing to be able to share and show people. Um, you know, so I really want to do that. It's just, you know, how, how much time you got. <laughs> so... Basically. Back to back to your website. I, I was I was on your website and, and I was looking at the fact that you can pre-order knives that have been DLC'd and all your <laughs> satin finish knives are are sold out. Yeah. Is it because it's harder to do the satin finish or? Uh, it's just because honestly, like my body isn't handling it well at the moment. I mean, you were saying last week that you were doing like fifty-seven knives worth of worth of hand sanding yeah. in in like five days. I just I can't do it anymore. I I've done it too much. Do you have like um, carpal tunnel syndrome or something or? Uh, it's my elbow and my right, my right arm. Tendonitis. Kinda, yeah. I had that um, a little bit when I was doing these and it luckily went away, but I was, it made me like really worry for the future. Yeah. And that's exactly the, the, the fear that I get too is, you know, like I still want to be doing this when I'm like 60. Um, you know, so if I like grind so up my elbows now, <laughs> yeah, just a few years away. But if I grind up my elbows now, I'm I'm going to have a lot more trouble later. So I have to work out what stuff I can do better to mm. avoid that. Mm. You know? Have you and... thought about taking somebody on? Uh, yeah. Young Buck, who, Coulter. who's He's got, got young knives. elbows. Yeah, Coulter Knives. He's getting the shout out. He listens to you guys every week, so he'll love right. that. Coulter's a man. Um, yeah, Mike's awesome. Um, he was fantastic to work with. He did a really good job on the knives that we worked on together. And so we were sharing a shop for a year, um, and uh, you were talking about uh, bone and antler before, and it's the bane of my existence because he loves the stuff and it smells like burning <laughs> hair. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Um, yeah, so I did do that, and he was fantastic to work with, but I just found it really, really stressful to be responsible for somebody else's income. Mm. Um, I could never really put that like fear out of my head, like, oh, what happens if mm -hmm. I don't get enough knife orders next month? Right. You know? Um, and then the other part of it too, is that I just found that it made my schedule a lot less flexible. Like 
as people that are self-employed, you know, we, we don't get a lot of the benefits of like a, a steady paycheck and, and no stress when we go home. So one of the, the benefits that we can get is, you know, flexible work hours. But there'd be tons of times where it'd be like a Sunday night and I'd realize that I hadn't done something that Mike needed like tomorrow morning. And I'd be like, oh shit. And so I'd have to go to the shop <laughs> and, you know, get things lined up for Mike. Um, you know, so that, that's partly me being disorganized, but I also just, I just found it, it robbed me of the, the flexibility. Um, but I do miss, miss having him in the shop. He would uh, always lighten my mood up. That is <laughs> one of the hardest parts of, I mean, I had, when I, have, when I had interns or somebody working for me, I was mm-hmm. constantly changing my schedule around to make sure that they had work for the next day. And if yeah. someone, you know, would call in, I felt like my time was wasted preparing for this person to come in. And it would get me crazy because, you know, I don't the one thing is when I was in working for artists, I, you know, if they didn't know what for me to do, they'd just grab give me a broom and sweep up and I that's think that's I I never want to be in that position with people who are in my shop where they're just sweeping up and doing nonsense. So I was very cautious of making sure they had a day's worth of work, but it was a lot of work to make sure they had it. Yeah, and I just, I think, like, our lives are already hard enough, you know, like, we're already doing taxes and bookkeeping and uh, sourcing materials and and answering emails and, you know, that extra thing just, um, I found it really difficult to deal with personally. I would think because you strive for such perfection, and it's, it's just very clear for years, that when you're having to deal with outside people who are in your way, almost like a hurdle, and then you're, it's making you think of, well, perfection is going to have to change a little bit because I'm not getting exactly what I want. And I have to, I would think that that's very, I would think that's very frustrating. Here we go. Here he goes. God damn you. you God damn you, Craig Lockwood. Can you just kind of like allow me to do, I mean, what the fuck I'm doing here? What's the matter with you? You're spoiling my bit every single goddamn time. I didn't ask him about anything hard. I'm just saying that you can't be, you can't be searching for perfection, but there's hurdles in your way. Yeah. And, you know, I'm very bullish about that, which is, which is part of the reason why, like, I think the, the relationship with the DLC company is a bit strained at times. You know, like uh, the owner of the company at one point said, look, if we keep having these problems, I don't want to do your knives anymore. Wow, that's that's a bad one. (laughs) And I was just like, but you've been doing them fine for years. And, and, you know, it it ended up being like a process change on their side. Um, But yeah, you're right. Like uh, dealing with people that have different standards, um, particularly outside vendors where they don't have that accountability to you is is really really hard and i'm i'm doing everything i can to bring everything back in house now yeah i'm, I'm trying the same to do as much as i can in-house so i'm not reliant on anybody yeah. um but it, obviously yours are far more specialist you know things like dlc that kind of thing and and so much more costly but um funnily enough i just i sent jeff a message this week how i i started bid on bidding on some sort of bigger machinery Ooh. because we're moving house and I've, there's a barn and i've got all this extra space yeah and you were and talking about that, the shop layouts and stuff yeah and the only thing that i'm i'm not doing in-house at the moment is um cutting out blanks mm-hmm. um so the obvious thing is to get like a like a plasma cutter you know they're not too expensive um but you know the goal is to have a water jet or a laser cutter right 
so I'm, so I'm so I'm looking online and you know, the price is you know the hundreds of thousands of pounds they're crazy, <laughs> um, but I come across this site and it's all sort of used X factory stuff. Right. And at the moment, there's so many factories closing down, unfortunately, but it does mean you can get your hands on stuff. So I, I was look, I don't know if you heard of Surplex.com, and it's all used sort of heavy machinery. No. And there's like there's like three meter by four meter like laser cutters, <laughs> for like. Like five grand and things like that oh and i'm like putting on these cheeky bits and i'm thinking oh gee, i gotta to explain to my wife oh there's yeah. a big truck pulling up with this massive yeah. machine on the back and... yeah my girlfriend dreads the phrase so i was on ebay <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think i know one person who's probably more it's the girlfriend of chris zepp Chris Zepp would make everything shop. Oh, geez, have yeah. has everything shop. He's he's yeah. he all he does is go on Facebook Marketplace and he, if he'll he will get a Bridgeport any milling machine. He doesn't. It, I think the fear is with guys like you and guys like Chris's. They they get the engine hoist, the crane hoist. They figure out how to move this shit, and then all of a sudden, and it's no longer like that's ah, too heavy. I can't buy that. I'm like, oh, it's not heavy. I can buy it. I'm, now that's what you need, Craig. You're gonna need like uh, a whole operation. Gantry. Yeah, I'll get a donkey. A donkey. Yeah. Do it old school. Donkey and car. Get, get Tim. Isn't, Tim isn't that what Tim's for? Oh, fuck Tim. <laughs> fuck Tim. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about, you know, big machinery and, you know, stuff that does specific jobs. But what if you had a grinder that did it all? Jeff, tell us a story about a Look grinder. Look at you. I'll tell you a story about a grinder. I was just working the hell out of my 2x72 grinder from Broadbeck Ironworks. I love this grinder. I used it vertically. I used it horizontally. I was just doing all these handle pieces. And it... what, lying down? You <laughs> lying me. down? Yeah, I'm, I'm lying down. I'm lying down, and then it's lying down with me, so we're both vertical. If I'm lying down and I put it horizontal, then we're both in the same plane anyway. It doesn't matter. You okay. Long platen, you can use it for uh, super versatile. The tool arms are awesome. All the different parts, they're very inexpensive. They're very reasonably priced. Ryan and Vince do an awesome job trying to give you value. They're knife makers. They know what you're going through. So they're going to try to fix things to make to deal with issues that you deal with. And if you go to broadbackironworks.com, put in Knife Talk 10, you get 10% off on your grinder no no fooling around with shipping it's the shipping's included um they're they have great new things going on lots of new uh, i just got the new fullering uh, arm uh and i'm excited to start in with that i'm actually on monday as we as this comes out i'm going to be like belly up to the my uh broadback i uh grinder because I'm going to be doing a 9 million serrations i'm doing all serrations on monday so i'm super excited and i can Use the VFD to kind of slow me down so I don't burn these blades up, and I'm really fired up. So go to BroadbeckIronworks.com, put in Knife Talk 10, get yourself a grinder, and support a very good company with guys who stand behind their products. There we go. There we go. Have we got any any um, dilemmas? Uh, this we week, actually Jeff? do have a dil- I dilemma. We have one dilemma, <laughs> and I'm going to uh, anonymous this one because it got a little. I I, I just had a. I'm, I did an. I just figured we'd just make this anonymous. So things that make you go. <laughs> I forgot that <laughs> motherfucker is gonna come on. All right. Um, <laughs> I've been cohabitating uh, a, a cohabit cohabitating shop space with someone for about a year. Shop decisions were made based on consensus, communication, and transparency. Uh, were there in troves, and we split the overhead in a lot of tools slash equipment. 50-50, or so I thought until I walked into my shop this morning. My shop Uh mate 
came into the middle of the night and moved out, taking well over a few thousand dollars worth of tools we split. Uh, we split the cost of, and even took tools that weren't his to begin with. All I was oh, left with, with were things that were bolted to the floor and a pile of spent belts with a note reading, grab my stuff, left some fresh belts, good luck, and best wishes. I should have oh, done geez. better to keep the receipts because now I can't even get the law involved or even prove ownership. Any words of wisdom? Holy I would say, shit. have you seen that movie Taken with Liam Neeson? <laughs> oh, I you. would find you. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, That's a good man. One. Jeez. That's a good one. That's harsh. Just left him with a few used belts. Oof. Asshole, man. That's got to be a criminal matter. That's got to oh, be but a he's, he's got no cop, proof surely. of he's got. I mean, it's, there's no proof of that they both split the machines. Yikes. I shit that, that that kind of going in the middle of the night shit always bugs the hell out of me. Obviously, I mean, it's just such yeah. a. <sighs> what about like emails, texts, like nothing, nothing talking I mean, about. I mean, you, you know, custody. You, we're talking about let's just say it's a knife making shop and you're talking about probably under ten that five thousand dollars ten thousand dollars or i i don't know if it gets to the point where sometimes the juice is worth the squeeze in terms of like suing someone or getting involved it might be you know lesson learned i, I tell you one thing is my first shop i worked for my mentor a long time ago and then when we i had to move out for various reasons it was it wasn't a very very nice uh i we tried to make it as nice as possible but it just you know personalities got in the way and it was not pleasant and i just remember one day when i was starting to move out this my uh landlord slash mentor had taken a soapstone and put his name on almost everything you know like all the steel everywhere because he was afraid that i was going to steal everything and i just you know i said to him like look i'm not a i'm not I would never take something that isn't mine. But it was like very much along the lines of, I seem to think that that's the kind of thing that he does because that's the kind of thing that he would do. So I, I know that feeling of the like... stapler in jelly in the office. You know, <laughs> he writes his name on the stapler. He puts it in jelly. <laughs> well, it was very, very, you know, it was, you know, made me it made me feel like he was expecting me to kind of walk off with stuff that, you know. But that sucks, man. Yeah, I hate sharing seriously. shit. I hate sharing shit with people. You know. Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky that Mike and I got along well through through the whole process of sharing a shop and through, um, you know, going our respective ways. Um, but yeah, I can totally see how it would go bad a lot of the time, you know. Right. Well, there's no advice. There's no answer to. There's no dilemma here, man. Just... Like the other guy did the wrong thing. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. If you've got to show up in the middle of the night to do something, you're doing the wrong fucking thing. I wonder if he yeah, knows where this guy lives. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, Rekha. <laughs> Good. I was just saying, I wonder if he knows where this guy lives. He must. I mean, if they're sharing a shop, I'm like, why wouldn't... I'm sure maybe they've hung out together, or he's given him a ride home, or who knows what. I, I don't, maybe it's yeah, time I for a home that, visit. I don't I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to show up with a baseball bat? Give me my grind? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck out of here. I'm, no. I'm like, lesson learned, and, you know... You know, yeah, it's it's as what Craig would do? say, people, people are the worst. People, they are yeah, yeah, yeah. the worst. Let's go back to um, some questions there because we we've got shitloads. Hey man, can I ask you a question? Aaron Green asks, "Hey gents, can I ask you a question? I conduct the finish grinding after my heat treating um, to not overheat the blade. I dip it in water." 
And he says, should I wipe the blade before putting it back on the grinder? Or is the blade being wet? Okay. Will a wet blade destroy the belt or shorten its life? And that's cheers from the podcast from New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, wet blades on abrasives. Um, I'd imagine it's fine. One thing that I did read back or I heard back years ago was that the water will actually conduct the heat faster. So whereas I know like sometimes with Scotch-Brite, I'll put like WD-40 on the Scotch-Brite mm. and it keeps things cooler a little bit. But I've heard that a wet blade on abrasives um, will actually, you'll heat up that water really quick and you'll get more heat in your blade. So I always give it a quick, I don't know if it's true. Again, one of those things I should probably question. But if, when I do a dip, I always do a quick wipe before putting it back onto the, uh, putting it back onto the belt. What about you guys? I would assume it helps it stay cool. I mean, in most machining processes, there's some sort of coolant that's there to help keep the material cold. I dip, I dip my blades. I don't wipe them at all. I dip them all the time. Like, I, I yep. literally dip them basically every five to ten seconds, and I, I never wipe them off. And I, I have had issues with belts um in the past but i don't think it had anything to do with the water there was a time when these 220 belts i was using like one after the next after the next were just blowing up but they were never on the seam i think it was just an old batch of belts or i don't know this is a lot this was like five years ago right. um hmm. and i just had to scrap the whole stack because they just kept blowing up and doing funky stuff to my knives and but uh, i've I've never had any problems with dipping belts or dipping blades in belts. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, in fact, I wish I could run a mister on my, or set up a mister on my grinder. I would love to set up a mister uh, to mist mm. water onto the belt uh, to help keep the grinding cooler. That way I'm not stopping every five, 10 seconds to dip the blade. Now we've what's, talked what's about water, cool, water cooler plate mm -hmm. as well. People have. Mm. They're cool. We've talked yeah. about those chiller plates before. And I wonder. I wonder how that those chiller plates help. I, I know for like, I guess it's basically a chiller plate. It goes behind your platen and then it runs ice cold water through the platen to keep it from heating up from the friction. Do you think? Yeah, that's I feel like it does more work for the belt because the belt, when it's cutting the blade, is still creating a lot of friction and heat. Yeah, I don't know if it really does anything for the blade. So I actually have one of those water-cooled platens, and I did use it for a while. Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, now, you're in the, now, you're the, now you're on the team, Aaron. Now you're um, on the team. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the idea with the water-cooled platens is more if you have, like, a, a radius platen. Because um, the radius platens, I don't know if you've ever seen those. Um, Nathan Carruthers makes them. So you get, like, a really big hollow grind um, with a, a radius platen. But they heat up really, really quick because you've got yeah. the belt dragging over the whole surface. So in that case, you totally need the, the water-cooled um, platen. But mm. yeah, I don't, I don't really see an advantage if you've just got a flat pat platen, though. I've never found hmm. any help, personally. Hmm. And, you know, the first part of that question was, was saying that he conducts all the finished grinding after heat treat. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do the same. Um, one thing that I talked about a couple of weeks ago is spending a lot more time up front um, because on the camp knives, they got big flat areas. So the idea was loads of upfront work, get them almost to a finished state. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea then is use like an anti-scale coating for the heat treat. 
so then that could just pop off and and it's done you know ready for the bevels um so i've put like two weeks work into um all the upfront stuff of getting all these flats super fat super flat all the spines finished everything all the file work all done coated it in the uh, it's, it's stuff called condersal mm. i found the z1100 which seems to be popular with people yeah i'd never heard of that until um, a week ago i'm curious about that stuff well oh i was wondering <laughs> if there was a butt coming well yes well it turns out that i need to refinish all these knives now oh, that God. they are hard they've gone through heat treat um i actually made a video so the video will be going live i think on tuesday um and i'm hoping somebody will see it and explain to me what i did wrong because this stuff just didn't work i, I pulled them out of heat treat and they've just got scale on them the scale seems to be oh, even more attached to the blade whereas these these are O2 blades, so very much like O1. Um, when you when you quench in oil, quite often the scale will just come off, or you can just pick it off with your nail. It it's gone. But this stuff is super stuck on. Oh, so it's actually made things worse. It, it might actually <laughs> be the condorcel itself that's stuck on. I've heard I've heard about this. Um, yeah, but it's 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 it, it's not coming off. You know, it's right. it's a case of having to go back to the grinder and um, grind it all off. <sighs> um, and, and do the whole process. So, yeah, it was like a week and a half of work, really, Brilliant. that I, I didn't have to do because I didn't have to do it all again. <laughs> so I'm sure I've done it wrong. Um, so hopefully somebody will see the video and, and tell me what I did wrong. But, um, yeah. but did they, That's but they got hard, though, right? Scale coating. Very hard. Yeah, yeah, they are hard. Um, to the point proper. where... Uh, proper hard. <laughs> to the point yeah. where um, I think... Yeah, where after um, quench... They were reading 70 HRC um, oh. after tempering. They're still at 65. So I think um, I need to get my tester um, calibrated because I don't think that's right. Mm. I think that is reading way too high. So I've actually got um, actually one of our listeners and a host of another podcast on the Makery Network um, has just had his calibrated. So he's just um, he treated a little block for me um, and he, you know, we, we can make sure that, that that's Give him a shout out. So then I can calibrate it's brian. Oh, brian brian house from 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 um uh work for it podcast good dude that brian he's just had his calibrated so he's gonna yeah he treat a block test that so i know that's correct and i, I can recalibrate mine because yeah so uh, this condosol yeah hopefully somebody will see the video and tell me what i've done wrong um it was just a complete and utter waste of time for me <laughs> i love foil i've, I've yeah. learned to love foil learn to love it Mm. Oh, I'm I'm working on a little thing at the moment that might make you love it more. Do you tell? Is this another secret, Aaron, or what? No, no, no. There's no, there's no real secrets. Just the, just the name. That's the only secret. Um, <laughs> what? So tell. What, what's? What are you going to tell me that'll make me love? Because uh, I've started using foil a lot as, as well. Because I'm heat treating in house again now, and obviously I hate it. Um, so I I uh, started messing around with doing seam welding rather than folding. Huh. Hmm. Oh, so how do you do having, that? Um, it was actually way easier to get it working than I thought it would be. It's like a, a really low voltage transformer, um, like electrical transformer that has a ton of current output connected to a literally like a copper rod. And then you um, have a grounding plane underneath, like for welding. And then you just run the copper rod along the top of the two layers. And the, the electrical current going through them creates a ton of heat and welds the two sheets together. Wow. Wow. Is that is it that fast? Great. It's really, yeah, it's pretty fast. Um, and that copper can withstand the heat then of of the of the heat treat. 
Uh, no, so the copper isn't going in. It's just the, it's just used to like join the two sheets of um, foil together. It's it's a little bit hard to explain. It, basically, it'll be a roller. The copper will be like a roller that makes electrical contact, and you roll it along right. the seam. It's like a um, food saver ah. for steel. Yeah, right. exactly. Vacuum exactly. packing. <laughs> Look at you. So at you. I, yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure whether that's gonna like fully work yet. I've already had one failure um, <laughs> with with testing it, but yeah, if that works, it's gonna be awesome. So now that you're doing heat treating. Uh, in the shop, do you have like multiple ovens, or what's I have a tempering setup? oven and my even heat. And then, how when you're when you do on a heat treating day, how many knives are you heat treating a day? Um, so like the other day, I did twenty four. Wow. Um, mm. be- oh, you just mentioned that you're putting them in at critical temperature anyway, so you don't have to wait for the oven to sort of ramp back up or anything. You can just yeah, take some up. I mean, you open the door and the temperature drops a couple of hundred degrees and because um, I'm putting like five blades in there at a time. So by the time the mm. oven has like rebounded to ostentizing heat, and they've had a bit of a soak already. So. Yeah. Ah, nice. Yeah, it's. I've got to work that out still, but it's it's coming along. Products in the making. <laughs> Love it. Super so cool. we've we've got another one. Um, Anthony. Uh, I think it's Guarino. Ant Anthony Guarino. Hey guys, can I ask you a question? When using water as a quench medium, what are some best practices to avoid cracks? He says I'm using 1095 and W1. Um, thanks for all you guys do. So aside from pointing um, to a full moon in that, in that general direction. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Josh does, right? Josh got? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. On the third Sunday of, of Equinox, um, pointing towards the moon, yeah. Um yeah, quenching. I've never quenched in water. Um, it scares the life out of me when you see it yep. happening. Um, sure. Mareko, you've probably got the most experience with this. Um, any any tips for Anthony? Yeah, the uh, the little experience that I have were failures. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you who who has really great experience and great success with it though is uh, is Greg Sims. Yeah, uh, he does all his hamon work are killer and a lot of it has to do with that really quick um quench into water and then what he and then he follows it by quenching finishing in oil so and this is the same technique mm. i've seen other makers like peter swarsbert and don win and this is a similar thing that they do but essentially they start in the water but then they finish in oil and they're only in the water for a few seconds like three four seconds and then they finish in hot in in proper oil temperature probably parks 50 for a, a, a shallow hardening steel at around 90 degrees 100 degrees um and but that i unfortunately i don't have a lot of experience and success of my own um that would that'd be a good question for one of those guys should get Greg he on the show it. and talk about. He did it in my shop. He did a demo in my shop. Oh and yeah. He did it. He uh, used yeah. He went in the water for maybe like two or three seconds, and then right into the oil. It was pretty yeah, intense. Awesome. Is that just like regular tap water, or is it brine? I oh, didn't I have any salt in the water. shop. I didn't have any. I think he just grabbed my sw- my uh, swarth bucket from my under my grinder and shoved it in there. I don't think there was anything <laughs> special. I sure. Cert- I certainly didn't have enough salt for for that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 
drain some tins of tuna into a bucket. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds so. terrifying. <laughs> Um, okay, let's just take a few more, um, and then we'll let um, Aaron get on with his day, I think. The next one is from Horizon Knifeworks. Um, Hi, cuties. I've been wanting to get my hands on a 2x72 for quite some time, as making knives with files is only fun for so long. Mm-hmm. But as my budget is really tight, do you think I should wait for another couple of months, more like six or seven, or get my brother-in-law, who's a fabricator, to build one from scratch? Um, what do we think? Um, very low budget. Um, and he and he's really wanting a two by seventy two. You know, what are the options out there? I mean, I think the Broadbeck is is there pr- we pretty go. economical. <laughs> honestly, yeah, it's a pretty economical option. And yeah, I I built my first grinder, and after I was done fiddling with it and spent all this time, uh, it probably took me at least a good two two months to to three months before everything was running perfect the way I would want it. That was all time that was kind of just wasted when I could have been productive. Right. And I mm-hmm. wish I had just invested in a grinder up front and I would have, you know, I would have got that grinder, whatever, a week later and I would have been straight to work. Um, but yeah. I know if money is an issue, honestly, it, it's, it, I think it's safe. I wouldn't, I, sure, I'm sure your brother-in-law, whoever it was, is is very talented. But unless this is what they do all the time, <laughs> I I would just say save up the money, have right. a little patience, save the money, and invest once in something that's quality that's going to last you a long time. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, Maybe I, like cheap out on I, the motor to start with to to bring the cost down and then upgrade later or something. But like, yeah, it's. Yeah, and and a lot of these grinders aren't it in the broadback as well. They'll come almost like flat pack as well. So there's there's a bit of assembly to be done, which is how they're making a huge saving. And I know they're much much cheaper to ship that way as well. Um, so yeah, go, well go and have a look at broadback ironworks. And yeah, well, there's a discount there. Is what's the discount, Jeff? Knife talk ten for God's sakes. Knife Not for talk God's ten. Sake. For Don't ask for God's sakes, but you could. <laughs> yeah, Live Talk 10, you get 10% off as well. But we realize, you know, not, not everybody's got, you know, money to blow on, on, on these things. And I think if you're making knives by files, wow, yeah, yeah, you know, you're deep in there already. Um, something I, I've never had the balls to even try, to be honest with you. So and good for you. shout out to Aaron Goff, who has a video on a filing he jig <laughs> that is like... I made one of those filing jigs and I made, I did that. I heat that his filing jig videos are unbelievable. And I know people who use them now. And when I did it, I was like, all right, parents says it's okay. And I got the two by fours and I got the eye bolts and then I bought the file and I, you know, I, you know, strapped it to the steel rod and it keeps you at the right. It was a really, really cool video, but I tell you what, when I got my first, uh, two by 72 grinder and I didn't get the VFD, I thought, how why did I wait so long to get this grinder? And then when I got the broadback with the with the VFD, I was like, "Why did I wait so long to get a VFD?" Right. You never regret it. You never regret it. You will. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's amazing to me how much practice it takes, though, to be able to do a bevel on a grinder. It's it's like because it's so fast, the mistakes happen so quickly. Yeah. Mm. Do you ever get out that old file jig and go old school, Aaron? <laughs> uh, not recently. No, I do have plans to do like a, you know buy 200 bucks of tools off Amazon and then make a knife from scratch video at some point. Um, but it's like the Mark IV. I've been saying that for a 
couple of years well, now. Here, now, let's get into your videos for a little bit because your videos have been so inspiring to a lot of people. And like I've said it a million times, when people ask me, what should I watch? I always say your videos. And I noticed that you stopped doing these, um, you, you stopped doing these kind of more how-to videos. And I, and I feel like, you know, you've grown a beard, you're older now, you're smarter, you know that this content, some of this content business is too much work, and you're focusing on your business. Are you ever going to do these how-to videos again? Um, yeah, so, like, I actually consider the videos to be, like, a really important part of the business, funnily enough, because I still get most of my customers from YouTube. Hmm. Um, so, like... I, the how-to videos, I'm not 100% sure at what level I'll be doing them, but I will be doing them for sure. Um, the, the Part of the issue is just that a lot of my process is less approachable now, so it right. makes it really hard to do a, mm. you know, a video on how to do something. Oh, so step one, fire up your CNC mill. You know, like, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it makes life a little bit hard to do um, kind of intro-level how-tos but i do i do plan to do more for sure yeah they're mm. really and great. i think more and more people will be getting into cnc and that kind of thing is yeah these machines are coming down in cost and that you know there, there is plenty of stuff on youtube but it is you know sorting through the weeds to find out what what is decent and what isn't really yeah and the type of cnc milling that i do like you know there's unfortunately not a whole lot of information out of it out there because i do um yeah. exclusively hard milling these days so i'm machining the steel after it's fully hardened wow um for the blade bevels and yeah it's 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 like voodoo or something it's you know even a lot of machinists have never done it so Um, if somebody wanted to get into cnc um work mm -hmm. what would the programming to learn what would you suggest people learn how to programming learn how to use um so I use Fusion 360, and I think that's a really good way to get started because, you know, so there's like SolidWorks and that kind of stuff, but, you know, SolidWorks is like six grand just to, to buy it, um, whereas Fusion has like a a non-commercial license. So if you're like a startup with under a certain amount of revenue or if you're not using it to make money, then it's free. Um, For the time being, I think they've changed things over the last few weeks, haven't they, where... Um, it used to be, I don't know, ten thousand hours or something like that, or ten thousand dollars you could you could earn. But they've changed that too. I think a thousand dollars now. Oh, so if you're really? only more than a thousand dollars using the software, and there's been a big kickback as well with that. But uh, well, I knew I know it used to be like two hundred and fifty k, you know, yeah. annually, and and I know that they reduced it to like a hundred or something. Um, but yeah, the the problem is that in terms of like it has to be approachable. You have to be able to get into it for very little cost. Like if right. you're not sure whether you're going to do it or not, then you can't go buy SolidWorks for like six grand. Yeah. Um, is Fusion so... 360, I'm sorry, is Fusion 360 something that's very like, you can use it for a lot of other things besides CNC? Yeah, for sure. Like 3D printing, um, you can use it for like laser cutting um, blanks and stuff. So Craig could use it to program his plasma cutter. Um, yeah. You can do animations in it, uh, rendering as well, like if you need photorealistic renders for, for something. Um, but it is really focused on like the industrial design side of things. Yeah, so it's CAD and CAM all in the one yeah. sort of program, which usually they're, they're separate programs. But if somebody hasn't done any sort of CNC in at all, mm-hmm. um, which I hadn't up until maybe eighteen months ago, um, I found that the like the browser-based stuff. So Inventables have a program called mm. Easel, 
which runs completely in the browser. And this will help if you... I mean, what I the first thing I did was bought one of those really, really cheap Chinese little mills, little desktop, like 30, 18 mills. Um, and I use easel. And, and it's fine for getting out, you know, handle shapes, that kind of thing. Right. It's, it's absolutely fine for that. Um, but it's really simple to to use. So easel's really good, and it'll spit up G-code, which then, obviously, your, your mill will use. Um, but you can get one of those little mills for – I mean, you can't use it for manufacturing, but you can, you can use it for, you know, for learning stuff. Yeah. Um, for you know, it's under three hundred dollars, um, and yeah, using Easel, which is completely free in the browser, it's all done you know cloud based. So you can save your designs, that kind of thing as well. Um, really good for sort of two D stuff, which would be you know cutting out handle shape blanks, that kind of thing. Not necessarily for three D sculpting, but you know a two D shape, it is absolutely fine for that. Yeah, and I started in a very similar way actually. I started, so it was before like CNC kits were were common. The um mm. the machine I bought off some guy's like rainbow colored HTML website for like a thousand bucks showed up in a box and it was um plexiglass and like electrical conduit for rails and and oh, skate geez. bearings <laughs> and yeah this thing was so shabby um but you know it it got me started yeah yeah and yeah you can do it really inexpensively you know get in. Um, to learn how these things work, um, I haven't really taken much of a plunge with Fusion 360. I've, I've dipped my toes in, and it, I think it's one of those things where you're never gonna master it. You know, it's always there's always stuff to learn. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I'm finding it just really fun actually. Just le- you know, learning you know the little bits that I know is is a lot of fun and lots of trial and error. Um, but yeah, for sure, I, I enjoy that process of, of learning something new myself. Yeah, and I think three D printing is a really interesting way to approach it as well. Like you won't get to learn mm. the the CNC side directly from three D printing, but you do get to learn the design side, which is really helpful. That reminds me, and kind of dovetails into what I want to talk about. You know, uh, Worker Man uh, used mm. um, his little beautiful pinch knives. He used three D printing some company to three D print his sheaths. Yep. And that was really like something really, I, mean, they're be- I have one, they're beautiful. And um, I wanted to talk to you about how you do your Kydex sheaths. On your video on your right. website, you were saying that you had a, uh, you had a hydraulic press built for sheath making? Uh, yeah, it's a pneumatic press, so it just uses the air. Um, and yeah, I made that a couple of years ago, uh, three or four years ago. And yeah, so basically what I do is I have the press and it has like a large plate at the top that's um, 8 inches by 10 inches. And then there's, you know, your standard kind of Kydex foam attached to that. And then in the bottom of the press, I have uh, like a mold. So it looks kind of like one of, like half of one of my knives sticking out of a plate. But I've altered it a bit to make clearance where I need it and to add like the drain hole and stuff. Um, and then I have a, like a t-shirt press. Um, that I use to heat up the Kydex. So I take the hot Kydex sheet, put it right in the, on top of the mold, and then close up the the press uh, to squish the Kydex down onto the mold. Um, And yeah, it works really well. And then you put it on the CNC machine to kind of, to finish off the sheath. Yeah, and I I hate that part of the process. Why? Um, So originally I was using like double-sided tape to hold the the Kydex onto the, the CNC. Right. And, you know, once every six times it would like pop off and, and take a, a cutting bit with it. And I'd end up with a oh, piece of Kydex that's like cut in half. Um, 
so I started using bolts instead to hold it down, which works, but it's it's super slow. Um, so yeah, I'm experimenting with new different ways to to make the sheets. Like that that's a, a really good way though. Like you could totally do that with a really cheap CNC router and um, you know make your mold out of like MDF and and have like a manual kite express or whatever. My brother-in-law works at a custom guitar shop and he does mm. CNC uh, like the pick guards for the electric guitars. Cool. And he uses this double-sided tape that I'd never seen before, but I guess it's typically used in flooring, like for the underlayment of stuff. Oh. And the stiction, like the stickiness of that tape is absolutely insane. You can peel it off. <laughs> pretty readily but how sticky it is i'd never seen any kind of tape like that before but um that if you want to try double tape again that might work yeah i would i would love to we've used i'll, I'll, I'll find a work. resource i'll i'll uh i'll get a hold of him and get that Amazing. info from him get we were in a yeah. metal shop that we would make um bronze and and stainless coverings for the outside of buildings and we mm. use like 3m industrial uh double-sided tape just to prevent it from like just to kind of put it down like i'm always surprised at how hard double-sided tape is and in in miracles right some of that stuff to get off it's like you gotta get yeah. the razor blade out and, and you know it's not going to mm. be easy yeah well it's like the sheet the sheer strength isn't it so it's like that that sort of cross-sectional strength if you're pushing something to the side that's where it's got lots of strength, but like picking up isn't, isn't, yeah, yeah the peel strength just... can be a lot lower. And the, the problem is yes, too, I have yeah. to find like a, a happy medium because I have to be able to get them off, mm, yeah. you know, they need to stay on, but I have to be able to get them off, which makes it really a bit of a pain. And, so... and I don't know what the Kydex, actual Kydex material is, but I know that what my brother-in-law is using is uh, they're doing vinyl and PVC mm. for their pick guards. And I don't know if that's comparable right. to uh, Kydex, but it, it sticks on there like crazy. Right. Yeah, Kydex is just a blend of PVC and acrylic, so it mm. should be pretty similar. And toxic as hell. I tried, tried um, texturing it with a laser. Oh, the don't black, do that. black smoke coming off that, and apparently the gas in is really bad for the lens. Of yeah, the it produces well. hydrochloric acid. What? Yeah, hydrochloric acid gas. Don't, don't do that, Craig. For, yeah, lasers make that happen? Yeah. yeah, and that that was your idea, I, Jeff. You said, "What? Stick a laser on that guy." You killed well, me. You know, I don't. What the hell do I want? You asking me about lasers for? It's ridiculous. Come on, man. How, so, so Aaron, when you're when you're working on these things and things don't go well, mm -hmm. how, what's your what's your how much cursing do you do in your shop? A lot. Yeah. I, oftentimes, actually, I do the Charlie Brown. I just get really sad, um, <laughs> and I just walk right out of the shop and go home. <laughs> So there's a lot of like shoulder dropping and yeah, ugh. sighing, heavy sighing. Oh, God. <laughs> I got, while we're talking about Kydex, actually, um, I'm just looking through the list of questions. Um, we're going to skip a bunch here because we've had so many. Uh, but this one is from CN Knives. Um, I've got a question about Kydex. Since Kydex sheaths tend to be pressed slightly over the knife handle, is there a chance the heat of the Kydex can mess with the epoxy in the handle mm. and loosen it up? Um, so yeah, for, for Aaron, not because he doesn't use a do you use epoxy? Um, but um, I'd say no because um, Kydex cools down really quickly, uh, especially when it's in the press as well. If you think of it like a, like a plate quench, it's going to take some of that heat out quickly. 
Um, and yeah, I can't see it being a being a. Well, the other thing is too, I, I, epoxy's way more heat resistant than people probably give it credit for. It depends what epoxy you're using. If you're using like a five minute epoxy, it'll tend to soften. But if you're using like a twenty four hour epoxy like West Systems or something, then I've actually like deliberately tested it in my oven up to four hundred Fahrenheit, and it was fine. Huh. Oh wow! There we go. That's great. Can I... So you're all good with kayaks. One, one more question in regards to your handles. I know that you you've <laughs> you've figured out the you figured out the uh, the hardest part about um, Kydex is the fact that it's hard to make a belt loop that mm. rides lower on the handle of the knife. That's why right. a lot of um, I've been uh, you know it's hard to get a you know like a tech lock clip on it because it won't because the way that Kydex works you can't go below your you're you have to have mounted below the bolster. Right. But you've you've made it so you kind of put in some webbing. Yep. Yeah, and that webbing was a total pain to find because um, it has to be really stiff to feel like a a belt loop and to keep the knife in the right place. Right. Um, so that was from Lowy Enterprises, L O W Y Enterprises in the states, and it's the one and a half inch black nylon scuba webbing, and that stuff is super stiff you could like cut a two in, uh, like a two foot length of it and hold it you know out at arm's length and it'll stay straight wow so so do you have to drill the holes and then use heat to like quarterize the the holes or how do you how do you um, work with it yeah so i used to like burn the holes through with like a red hot um poker but um like with the kydex and the and the laser that produces some really nasty gases and i didn't realize that the acid gases actually go through a lot of respirator cartridges. Huh. Um, so I was wearing like P100 organic vapor respirator cartridges to do that. And um, I was doing that in a closed room and ended up so sick that I couldn't finish the day. Um, and I felt like shit for a couple of days after that. So yeah, don't do that. So if you're going to do that, wear acid, acid gas vapor. Yeah, acid gas cartridges. Um, so what I have now instead is um, I made a special drill bit. So it's basically like a quarter inch um, drill blank that I machined on the end so that it's hollow. So it's like a really thin tube at one end that's sharpened. And then it has an, an exit port out the side. So you put that in a drill and just drill through a little template through the webbing. And it cuts the webbing by spinning. And then all of the loose fibers get ejected out the little port on the side huh. um and then i have so I, I i drill it through a steel template like just holes in a steel template and then after it's drilled i just quickly run the blowtorch through the holes to heat seal the ends um and that works really well gotcha. it's just like it's just like punching a hole which you then just sealing up with the heat yeah basically it's just uh. you can't really punch the webbing because it's it kind of just frays so um cutting it with the, the sharp edges is the way to go. You can actually laser webbing, though. If you have, like, a CO2 laser, it lasers really nicely. I just don't have one. Right. That's for you, Craig. Ah. I don't have I a don't CO2 know. laser. Ooh. Yeah. Another type of laser to get. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whilst we're talking about lasers, Morocco, did you get that little laser for the, for the wood? Uh, we ordered one, and oh, it's cool. en route... And I, I did connect with, uh, actually, we have a, a makerspace local here. Um, and so I, I did connect with them to just get these one-offs lasered 
um, cool. and they helped me with that. But I look forward to playing with having, uh, you know, being able to do it ourselves and repeatedly do it over and over again. Um, I'll, so th- that'll be uh, the basics of CNC, and then mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what you'll be doing. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. There's still a lot cool. to learn for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's do one more question, and then we'll um, let's talk about our hopes and dreams Ooh. for the week. Uh, this one is from Michael Gregg, and he says, "Hey, cuties from New Zealand," and he says, "We sit below Australia in location, but above Australia in bladesmithing." Oh, oh, wow, some, them fighting words. Bold claim, man. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about your earlier discussions on building scale to the business and creating something to sell in the future. But what have you done to protect your name and your knife designs? Mm. And he says, for chop knives, for example, is pretty generic. Um, and he says, cheers for from all your Kiwi fans. Um, so maybe this is a good one for, for Aaron to start because he's got more of a sort of production facility there. Have you protected your designs or the name in any way? Yeah, I mean, so the, the designs, because they're like an artwork, you can you can basically claim that they're covered by copyright. So, yeah. and I've had to do that a couple of times, just like reach out to people who are knocking off my stuff and be like, hey man, this is not cool. Um, and aside from AliExpress, everybody else had good reactions to that and it, it went away pretty quickly. <laughs> What's AliExpress? Did you have Chinese knockoffs? I did at one point have Chinese knockoffs. You've made yeah. it. You've made it. The, big the only time. problem was they copied them from photos. So all of the like holes and stuff were just random sizes. Oh. What's, they weren't what's very what's good Ali knockoffs. Express? It was a bit of an insult. What's AliExpress? Oh, it's an insult. Okay. <laughs> no, uh, Ali, you don't know what AliExpress is? No. Oh, it's just like oh, a man. direct from China shopping website. Mm. Honestly, sometimes yeah. there's it's... stuff on there that you just cannot get anywhere else. Like I needed a screen yeah. for my CNC machine and I couldn't find something that would work anywhere else except AliExpress. Yeah, it's basically Amazon for like Chinese manufacturers, yeah. basically. But there's lots of knockoffs on there. You need to be very careful. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah. Aside from the the design, then that you said that you've um, you've sort of copyrighted, is anything with with your name, for example? Um, it gets a lot harder from there, honestly. Like like trademarks yeah. um, are probably the primary way, but then you have to like trademark in every uh, you know country that you're going to sell to yeah pretty expensive yeah because you could trademark in the states but then you know someone can just use your name in the uk um and there's no legal recourse to that so yeah is there legal recourse is if if some from from someone from another country takes your work and then you say i have a trademark on this is there any legal recourse anyway not really like if they're using your name um then not really like you could if they're trying to represent as being you, then maybe. But if they're just using the name, then not really. Mm. Um, the design, kind of. I, I don't like. I'm not an expert in this area, um, but I've had to deal with it a little bit. And yeah, it's really frustrating. You know, when you've you've worked for years to to make a name in something, and then other people come along and they're just like, "Oh, that's a good name." What if somebody just added an extra H to Goff Customs, so it said Goff with two H's? How does that work for you? Uh, not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't enjoy that. I in the same font, in the same font. Right. I just, I just ordered the Mestitute <laughs> MK7. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> from Gorf, from Gorf Customs. <laughs> from Gorf oh, that's customs. fine. They can have Gorf Customs. 
I don't want that one. <laughs> uh, Jeff, I think I know your thoughts on this. What are my thoughts? What, what do you think? What do you answer for I me? I think then? you're going to say, move on. You know, it's up to you to put out good work, and this people is, want to. This is know, true. I'm I'm to. impressed with I'm I'm always impressed with Aaron because I feel like he takes he thinks of everything, and I would never think to get a copyright. Usually, for me, it's like. Well, there's not much you can do. That's the reason why I said I wanted to make more. I want to make more kind of sculptural stuff that's beyond, you know, mm. it's just be hard to kind of replicate. You know, you, you look at guys like Tomer, our friend uh, from Florentine Kitchen Knives. I don't know anyone who's more ripped off than him. I mean, it's like hmm. people have been knocking him off left and right, especially in Europe. And I don't know what you do. I, I, no idea. Except for curse a lot. You know. The nice thing about copyright is it doesn't cost anything. Um, like trademark, you know, there's a whole process. But like copyright, as soon as you publish a work, you have the copyright to that work. Yeah. So how do you go about doing that? Um, well, like basically you just need proof that you published earlier than the other person. So if someone's using your exact knife shape, you know, it gets difficult, right? Because like if they're doing different handle scales or if they've changed a little bit, then is it a derivative work? Is it? Is it a new thing? Like, it gets real dicey. And I think at that point, whoever has the best lawyers wins, right? But, like, um, if someone's, like, making an exact copy of your knife, then, yeah, you for sure have copyright of that design. Um, whether you can enforce it or not, yeah. I guess you, you get someone to really do a good cease and desist letter. And then you exactly. cross your fingers that somebody's going to be real scared. <laughs> well, and I've had good luck, to, honestly, just being like, hey, man, like, um, you know, nice work on the knife, but like, just so you know, you can't really use my design without permission. I would prefer if you take this down. And you know, like one time, it, it just disappeared. They never responded, but it disappeared. Yeah. And then other times, people have been like, "Oh, sorry," you know. Like, I try to give the benefit of the doubt where I can. Hmm. Morocco, what what do you think? Um, have you done any sort of protection on any of your? um name logos blades anything at all um i have a friend uh north of me in seattle who is a trademark and copyright lawyer mm. and and um when it comes to copy or trademarking names like actual names that maybe like i have a big family and there are a lot of malmasis out there um mm. and you know it it's very challenging you can kind of you can start the process but it's like i can't remember exactly what it was but i could have apl applied for something a long time ago and there was kind of like a five-year holding period to where you know if somebody else also applies at the same time then they kind of cancel each other out and then you can't do it um but if after a certain period of time five years or so some nobody else tries to apply for that same trademark then you can start moving forward and and getting it but again it is a costly process. Uh, I haven't tried to copyright mine or trademark any of my stuff. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the ballpark of just trying to create work, even when it's kind of my quote unquote, it's like simpler work, still trying to do something that is, is difficult to scale so mm -hmm. that someone in China can't like, if they try to rip it off, 
all they can really rip off is like the profile of the blade but there there's so much nuance to it that you just can't scale that it's never going to really feel the same as actually using one of my knives and that's all i can think yeah. to do i think a big thing of it is being able to I, I talk about story a lot, but being able to tell your stories. So I think anybody who buys one of my knives knows that I've made it and, and where it's come from. I think if they, not that, you know, it is being ripped off, but if, if, if there was a, a chop knife that looked like one of mine on Alibaba, I think people would know, well, that's clearly a knockoff because they know how we operate. If, yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? We, we've all got this way of sort of... Um, documenting how we do things and we all have our, our websites and that kind of thing um so i think if if it shows up in in an unusual place i think people would would sort of know um because you know most of the customers that i get are people who either you know they they listen to the show or they, they follow me on instagram or you know pe people generally do dig in now mm -hmm. when they, when it's something especially a handmade product people want to know the story a bit more they don't just look on alibaba for the cheapest and and buy that so, yeah, I don't think there's much you can do. And and I think when it comes down to sort of trademarking and copywriting, the onus is always going to be on you then to, you know, to protect that. And yeah. there's, the, you know, that there's a lot of work involved with that as well. I just think, yeah, if you can just do the best work that you can, tell your story well, I think it's, yeah, people will know when it's a knockoff. Yeah. Really. Sure. They probably won't. You do. I'll, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell a vague story that you guys know about. I'm going to keep it as vague as possible. But we know, you know, we know of a of a famous guy who started making my knives, and uh, I was alerted to it by Morocco <laughs> a number of years ago. Um, I'd made something, and then all of a sudden, this Kydex chef knife showed up in Connecticut, and it was confirmed to me by people behind the scenes, and it was it was far enough that it wasn't an, a direct knockoff. But it was close enough that it was like annoying. And then, you know, yeah. they were and and the the proof was is this person had one of my knives, had the knife that he wanted made. Right. And it's like it, it was it's the point where I'm not about to go hire a lawyer. And at, out of respect for other people, I just decided to I'm not going to compete against a ninety dollar knife that no one's really going to buy either. But it was like it was annoying, and I honestly didn't have the ability to get involved with lawyers, and and I don't, it didn't even cross my mind. I also thought deep down, if if I'm hanging my hat on this one thing, then that's my own problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard, man, because it's like you know, it, it just especially when you're coming up with a new knife design or something. You know, we all have inspirations, and like, at what point does inspiration become? Um, mimicry or or copying yeah you know straight out of that yeah. yeah it's yeah there's only so many things you can do with something small sharp but and this is why we uh, talk about the, this a lot is that the true sincerity comes from small evolutions of your design mm -hmm. that you can kind of like show the work you can show the work at like see yeah. where it comes from and see how things have evolved and changed based on these sincere moments of evolution and not just being like i'm gonna make that dude's knife Let's take a deep <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Press the buttons, yeah. My goodness. <laughs> no, Sorry, that's it. I, that's all I had to say. Cut them off. Okay. Okay. Shall Let's we talk about our hopes and dreams? 
Okay, it's Sunday afternoon here, Sunday morning for you guys. Um, what do you hope to achieve by this time next week? Let's start with Morocco this time. Well, I'll tell you what. I've been working on this finish on this knife, and I thank God I have Rhino Wet by Andasa USA. Look at you. Uh, you can, uh, you know, if you you got some hands, I know Jeff's got a hell of a lot of hands. Well, actually, he finished up the hand sanding, but he was relying heavily on that Andasa sandpaper. Depending. And if, yeah. <laughs> and if you go to Texas Farrier Supply at texasfarriersupply.com, you can get, you can actually save yourself. It's it's 10%, right? And I've talked 10 Knife Talk 10, and it's, and it's 10% off everything, everything. that you sell, not just Rhino Wet, too. Yeah. yeah. So go get yourself some super handy-dandy, very reliable abrasives for hand sanding your blades. But I've been working on this finish of this knife, um, and I'm hoping – like, my fingers are crossed. I've actually had to redo it twice. Uh, it's in the coffee. It's been there overnight. I'm going in today after I eat breakfast. We'll see what's happening if – if everything's gone right, then it's it's just the last steps of cleaning things up, taking pictures of it, and getting it out the damn door. And nice. onward and upward on uh, the – I'm actually doing a small batch run of uh, some remainder knives from the last Smith & Bard uh, batch I did last year. I got three of those, and I have three forged blades. I'm going to try to get these all t put together. They're They're almost there. They basically just need handles. So I'm going to try to get these ready for kind of like the holiday shopping season as that starts to kick off in the next few weeks uh, so we can get those out the door and get those into people's hands and happy homes. And yeah, so it's just kind of getting things organized so we can move forward with that build, the, those group of builds next. Nice. <laughs> what the hell am I doing? Oh, we got pop quiz? See it all over the place. Jesus all over the Christ. Place. All over the place. Here we go. <laughs> Jeff, your week. What 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 do you want to be? I done? have to cut in seventeen hundred ninety-two serrations nicely <laughs> by Monday and Tuesday, and I'm hoping to get these knives. I I fin last week I spent all this time with um with the handles and I roughed them in. I drilled all the holes, roughed them in, and all I have to do is slap them on, and then the final I got to glue them up, obviously, and then. The fine. I don't have what Aaron's got. I, got, I wish I had the CNC machines. All of a sudden, I got to like, I got the, I got the, uh, I got the combat abrasives. I got the Rhino Rat, and I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be uh, doing serrations and then gluing these handles up. And I, I'm trying to have them done, all of them done and shipped in two weeks, which I'm feeling very confident about. Nice. And then nice. it's been like hoodie city. All the sweatshirts, like I have boxes of sweatshirts. I got to bag up today, like out of control you're in fashion <sighs> you're in fashion i'm telling you the rag trade it. never again. i know we're already like hugely over time but like do you you guys are talking about sandpaper do you use mold polishing stones at all mm. no um why i don't but we talked about this just a few weeks ago actually um i don't know i i, I don't know why i've never tried but um rhino wet's a sponsor <laughs> 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 yeah, sorry, sorry, run away. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, I've never tried. I, I don't know, but I've heard very, very good things about them. Yeah, yeah. If you've never tried them, you really should. I keep meaning to do a video on them. Um, like they cut my hand finishing time in half. 
Oh, wow. Wow. I have a set of them. I've just never taken the time to use them. I, yeah. The only thing I've heard is that they're very brittle. Yeah, but like that's not really an issue. Um, Unless you're heavy-handed. <laughs> well, like I break the ends off mine all the time, and it just doesn't matter. Like when you get into the finer grits, it can, because then the like kind of sharp broken end can gouge if you're not careful. Um, but it's not really an issue. Part of the problem with mold polishing stones is that there's like a hundred varieties, and different people recommend different varieties. And then you know some people people are like, oh, I tried them, they suck, and it, it might just be because they have the wrong ones. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. So the abrasive doesn't disappear. The, the, you actually wear it down, it's abrasive throughout. Yeah. Am, am I right in thinking yeah. that? Right, okay. So it's basically like a sharpening stone. Um, you know, it's a, a block of yeah. aluminum oxide or silicon and carbide grit bonded together with like a resin. And the, the resin, the strength of the resin is tuned so that as the abrasive grains get dull they actually get pulled off and then you have fresh abrasive exposed nice ah makes a lot of sense. yeah so like i'll go through one stick every like 10 knives or or something like that but it works out being way cheaper than sandpaper and it takes less time hmm. nice okay <laughs> So I'll go next, and I'll leave our guests to have the final word. Um, but I, um, I'm going to be <laughs> doing a lot more um, finishing on knives again. So these camp knives, um, I thought I was being really clever by getting ahead of the game um, by doing all the finishing before heat treat, um, using this condor. So the uh, anti-scale stuff didn't work for me. So. I'm back to doing that, I'm afraid. Um, but I am ahead of the game with these. These are, these are meant to be shipping, I think, by, this, by the end of the second week of November. Um, and, I'm, and I'm on track for that. So this set me back a bit, but I'm still on track. So, yeah, it's, it's back to that this week, I'm afraid. But um, I will be publishing a video, I think, on Tuesday um, regarding th that Condosol stuff. And I'm, I'm hoping somebody will watch it and tell me what I was doing wrong because i've heard great things so you know it must work but for some reason it didn't work for me so so that's my week refinishing um these these camp knives and aaron your week. love the hops what's what's the dream oh blades and heat treat this this week so just gotta heat treat a bunch more blanks and then do all the cnc machining and hand finishing and blasting on them ready for dlc do do you find that you have a schedule then that you'll do like like a week of heat treat then uh, a week of you know finishing a week of putting handles on how, how do you schedule maybe things? I should um, but no I don't really and that's actually one of the nice things that I like about working by myself again is just you know I have a I have a list of stuff to do and I just do them as quickly as I reasonably can you know hmm. um. So I never really have to worry about like leaving something half done because I can just come back to the shop and finish it up the next day or, or whatever. Which Do you live really close nice. to your shop? Yeah, I just... So I used to be like a 45-minute train ride, the, the shop that I shared with Mike. Um, it was worse for him. He was all the way across the city, which was pretty brutal. But yeah, the, the new shop that I moved to in April is uh, just like a 20-minute walk from my house, which is great. Nice. Nice. So that's the week. That's the week. Hopefully everybody is happy, healthy, um, and ready for a good mm -hmm. week. This is Monday morning when this goes live. So, yeah, G yourself up. It's going to be a hell of a ride for the week. 
Thank you all very much for listening. Um, thank you again to Aaron for for joining oh, us. Thanks this for week. having me, guys. Um, yeah, you'll have to come on again because we've got honestly we've got so many questions. Love to. So yeah, let let's pencil things in before another three and a half years. Let let's make it before that this time. Sounds great. But um, thank you very much for listening, everybody, and we shall speak to you all again next week. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.